This is Jocko Podcast number 208. With Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Let me have your attention. At this point, you must complete a 12-mile tactical foot march in three hours. You must wear all equipment properly. You must have Kevlar helmet on your head, and you must carry your M16 rifle at the ready position. This means that the rifle must be ready for use against the enemy. Discuss appropriate safety precautions and candidates' responsibilities for helping injured candidates. Then say, what are your questions? If anyone has questions, repeat the instructions, but do not elaborate on what you have read. Pause five seconds and then say, begin. And those right there are the instructions to be given by the cadre to candidates for the EIB, the Expert Infantry Badge in the U.S. Army. That's a qualification that requires knowledge in a plethora of different weapons, including pistols, rifles, machine guns, grenades, anti-tank weapons. It requires skill in combat medical care, skills in coordinating and calling for supporting arms, land navigation, chemical and biological operations, amongst other things, and a 12-mile foot march. That is one of the evolutions that you are not allowed to retest on. You either make it or you don't, and that makes sense because the foot march, and I think that's really a nice way of saying it, so what we used to call a forced road march, is a physical and mental test of will. And I talked about I talked about the road march in podcast 38 the patrol patrolling in teams, patrolling with my family. And I started off that podcast with a little reading of infantry columns by Kipling. Boots. <laughs> and I explained that marching or humping or patrolling or rucking explained what it meant to me, how it impacted me, and how, in many ways, it can be a bit of a metaphor for life. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. And with me on the program, Tonight is a former Special Forces soldier who's also impacted by the patrol, by the hump, by the ruck, and who has made his new mission to spread the power of the ruck. So here we go. Jason McCarthy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jocko. Thanks for coming on, man. It's good to meet you. Likewise, likewise. So let's just jump in to figure out sort of how you ended up, how you ended up. Where did it all start? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Born in Dayton, Ohio. 
right? So Southern Ohio, and but never really lived there. Mom and dad were both really young when they had me. Mm-hmm. Mom was like how young? Mom was eighteen in five days. Dang. Right. So you know, how old was dad? Dad was nineteen. Okay. Right, and you know, uh, as you might expect, marriage didn't last super <laughs> long. Grandparents weren't super happy about this, but you know, they they ended up taking very vested interest in me. But my mom was was actually. She was the real athlete in the family. She won junior college nationals in tennis after having me at Sinclair Community College. Wow. Right there. And then got a full ride to go play for the, the Gators down in Gainesville. So we moved to, to Florida and then just bounced around. And so who was raising you? I, well, mean, I was she, with my mom. And she's, so she's going to college, winning national level tournaments in tennis and raising you. Yes. And so so she's, she's a bit of a trooper, huh? She's very much a trooper. <laughs> Very much. And so, you know, I mean, I, some of my earliest memories are, are going to, to her tennis practices and her tennis matches and my grandparents flying down to take care of me while she Now, was, was she raised like a tennis kid? Yeah, sort of. I mean, an athlete. Uh-huh. And just, just across the board? Just across the board. And then she ended up being really good at tennis. She was number one in Ohio her whole youth. And so it just extended from there. When you're really good at something, you, and you end up And then she just managed to have it. a kid. So was she in high school? Yeah. Was she in managed high school when she to. had you? Yeah, I mean, managed to. <laughs> was that like her senior year? Yes. So wow. she ended up graduating early and then almost went into like hiding sort of at my dad's house with my dad's parents who were you know, a little more okay with the situation than mm-hmm. my mom's parents. It, it was tough, mm-hmm. no doubt. Yeah, no, it's tough. can't even imagine. This is, what year were you born? 1979. Yeah, so it was like society was still a lot more, I'd say, hard to deal with from that perspective of like a young mom in high school. I mean, single moms, Yeah. I mean, it's that's tough. And the older I get, the more respect I have for how tough kids are. And especially, <laughs> you know, especially a single mom with, with a young kid and still trying to live your life and go to college and then get a job and do those kinds of things. So you, so you have memories early on, you're like one year old and you're going to tennis tournaments with your mom. Well, I was, and all the other little 18, 19 year old college girls are like worried about their hair (laughs) and your mom's like, hold on a second. I got to feed my kid. Something like, yeah, I was like, I was two or three and I remember the, the tennis coach at Florida, he used to always pull my ear. His name was Andy Brandy and he would pull my ear before the matches and you'd say, are you going to behave today? Right. And so <laughs> it was, it, it inspired behavior that was good for me. Yeah. Cause like, once again, I'm picturing these girls playing your mom and you know, they're worried if there's, there's some distraction over on the side is like a camera going off. And meanwhile, your mom's got the screaming baby. <laughs> That's nuts, man. She had a lot on her plate. Yeah, she did. And so then, and so at what point did she kind of give up tennis? and move into, or did she like become a tennis pro at a club or something like that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm convinced that without me, she would have at least tried to go pro. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was really good, you know, um, and, and she just, she had me and graduated in what, 85, so I would have been six years old when she graduated from Florida, and you can't go. Graduated can't, from Florida University? University of Florida, University go Gators. Florida. And so instead, you know, she ended up getting remarried and did become a, a teaching tennis professional and did that for about 20 years. So 
Yeah, we we moved around. We moved to Texas and Tennessee and back to Texas and then settled in in Jack's Beach, Florida. How old were you settled in Jack's Beach, Florida? We moved there in 1992. And how old were you? So I was eighth grade. Was my first year in school there. Sort of how I associate. I remember the grades where I was in which city and yeah. But so you did your full high school career in Jacksonville, Florida. I did. And so you were born and raised kind of with a tennis racket in your hand, I assume. Tennis racket and a basketball. Okay. And tennis eventually won out. But how? Yeah. I got cut from the eighth grade basketball team. <laughs> uh, so it's weird because I was the new kid and I moved and I was, I did really well in basketball when I'd moved from Texas. And I just, I moved to Florida and it just didn't click for tryouts and didn't know anybody. And they were like, sorry. And it was kind of a, crushing blow. And this is not one of those things where, you know, the Michael Jordan story takes place. And I, and I doubled down on my training and practice mm-hmm. and became a great basketball player. Like I, I played pickup ball, pickups <laughs> up, but I, yeah, I quit, Jocko. I qu- <laughs> quitting is forever. And I quit. <laughs> uh, but I still played tennis and that was, you know, easier to make the team and stuff. So I did that and did that through college. So you played tennis in college? I did. One of my friends played tennis at the Naval Academy and his sophomore year, he lost a match and he stood in the court and threw his five tennis rackets out of the court into the woods and never played tennis again. <laughs> Quitting forever, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was in the team, so he was a great guy, but he just, he, he never wanted to pick up a tennis racket again. And it had been, a, obviously, to play at the Naval Academy, it had been a big focus in his life. Fr- a frustrating sport. It's a frustrating sport. I mean, and, and it, it, it teaches you to makes you very sensitive to what you think are your needs too, right? Because you're alone and you're an individual and you're out there and you, you take everything so seriously. And you know, one of the things that the military culture would bring out is that you have to be able to overcome the little stuff. You know, someone someone clapping too loud two courts over, that can just ruin your life if you're playing tennis. And that's, you know, like be quiet, be quiet. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> And, you know, you, you have to learn how to fight through that kind of adversity. Yeah. The other thing about tennis, like in jiu-jitsu, if you make generally, if you make a little mistake, you can kind of recover from it. You can make it adaptations and and usually one mistake. Now, look, you can make a mistake in jiu-jitsu and that's it. You can get arm locked or you can get choked. It happens. But you can also make a mistake and you can recover from it and it's not, and it will have not a big factor, but you can you can hit a ball into the net. That's it. You just lost that point. Yeah, the point, but not the yeah. not the game, not the set, not the match. You can, I mean, you can come back from huge deficits in in tennis, and it's it's really like everything else. It's it's mental. So so you played tennis in college. I did. I went to Emory in in Atlanta. And then, were you thinking that you could be some kind of a pro tennis player? Absolutely not. <laughs> I was just, I mean, so I, I loved the the team element of tennis. I, I kind of stopped enjoying the individual part of it. It just, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of, you know, it, it just, the, the process of playing tennis in my youth was, I, I really enjoyed the team part of it. And so that continued through college and I really enjoyed it in, with, with my team in, in college. I just, I wasn't good enough. It just wasn't going to happen. Now, I did consider, hey, maybe I'll go down to South America and like try to play some tournaments or something after college, but I tore my rotator cuff my senior year and couldn't, you know. So when you're, when you're trying to measure yourself at that juncture in life, 
are you looking at, hey, I'm this powerful, or you're serving, uh, let's just try and break it into something that a normal non-tennis player human could understand. Let's say your serve, a good serve is 120 miles an hour? That's a big serve, yeah. Okay, or let's say 100 miles an hour is like the minimum to be a pro, and you're serving, let's just say, I'm not saying you in particular, I'm saying a human serving 90. And they're trying and they're trying all these different things and they just can't really make it happen. Does that, is that basically what happens? I mean, at some point, are you saying, look, it doesn't matter how much I practice. I don't have the physical aptitude to be top level. Yeah, I mean, you get into really, really thin air, you know, and, and just like in BUDS or in the training that I went through, there's, there's physical capabilities that will limit certain people, but there's also mental stuff that will limit certain people. And mine were mostly physical. I just I wasn't fast enough on the court. I wasn't, I mean, you get into really thin air where, I mean, these guys that are great at tennis and, and girls that are great at tennis, I mean, they were kind of always really great, mm-hmm. you know? But I think that it's it's important to to find something to be a part of a team throughout your life and, and to do more of that. And so for me, it was really just a vessel. I mean, I don't want to confuse myself even with my mother. My mother was a great athlete mm-hmm. and when it came to tennis. And, you know, I just I didn't get the same degree. My, my grandfather was in, played basketball growing up. But, you know, he was, he was drafted to go play for the, for the Lakers but couldn't afford the bus ticket from Colorado to – <laughs> to California, and so went and got a job. I mean, times were very different back then. I mean, can Damn, you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And so, they, so when you go to college, are you? What did you go to college for? Uh, studied economics. And what were you thinking? Your future looked like. Yeah. So I was thinking I didn't really know, but I thought I would do something in business or consulting, or I had these. You know, these. It, it's a really tough state to be in when you're in your early 20s and you're you're going to college or you're trying to figure out your life and you don't know where it's going to go like th- those are hard years mm-hmm. and you, you look at them from an older vantage point and you say you kind of had to go through that and it doesn't make it any easier when you're going through it though and so i just i really didn't know i wanted to do something special i wanted to do something more and I, I just had no idea what that would, would mean. And so, you know, you just sort of say, oh, maybe I'll go work at Goldman Sachs. That's a great place to work. Or I'll go work at McKinsey and be a problem solver or something to that effect. And it just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And so graduated 2001, May, and still didn't know. But, you know, a few months after that, it was going to be a very different world. Mm-hmm. So did you get a job right after college? I did. I went and traveled a little bit around Central America for like a month or two. And it tra- that type of stuff gets, it gets kind of old. You don't really find yourself when you go far away. It just <laughs> sort of amplifies what you're already thinking. And I, I needed to do something. I needed a mission. I needed a purpose. And I needed a community. Right? And did you, I mean, obviously your mom wasn't in the military. Your dad, your grandpa, was there any military roots that you had in your family? So my my grandfather was an artillery officer in Korea, never talked about it, ever, Check. right? My uncle was a, a, a naval aviator. He was a class of 77 uh, Annapolis grad, but never really saw him. 
Mm-hmm. So it wasn't part of my the decision making process of my life. Like this is what I can go do. It, it was just it was a bridge too far, right? I didn't understand what the military did, frankly. I mean, yeah, defend America, but how? What's what does that mean for a life, right? I mean, when I grew up, it was peacetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. I mean, aside what from what year did you graduate high school? Ninety seven. Check right. So I mean. This is not a time when the military is front and center as it is now. And in Mm -hmm. fact, if anything, what was the military's purpose at that time? It didn't have a ton of, there weren't wars being fought. Mm -hmm. Basically what I'm saying is, is I didn't get it. It was naive, but I didn't get it. And it seems like it was just kind of outside your purview of the world, right? I mean, it wasn't on the news every day. You weren't seeing military operations on the news every day like you'd see now. So it just, you're growing up and it wasn't a thing that was really part of your world. Look, there was no John F. Kennedy at the time, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That wasn't part of the discussion in our country. And I think that's, that's a problem and that should always be a part of the discussion. And that just wasn't the landscape where we are. So, or where we were. So it took 9-11 to really bring that to the forefront. So wait a second, South America, did you go solo down there? Who'd you go down I went with a buddy. We just sort of backpacked, quote, quote, around. And you're thinking you're going to see the light and find your future? But really, you you were just... (laughs) I'm going to just find this magical adventure like DiCaprio did in the beach or whatever, and it's going to be life-changing and whatever, you know, all who all who wander are not lost. Yeah, that's true. But some that wander are lost, <laughs> right? And you know, part of it is you want to have an adventure. You don't know exactly how to do it, but you got to do something. You can't just sit around and do nothing. So, did I, you come to any conclusions on your backpacking I, trip? I did. I needed a mission. I needed. So you actually something. figured that out. You like? I just, I, it was it was awesome, but so boring. Like, I just I needed to be part of something bigger than myself. You can't backpack around the world for the rest of your life. You yeah. just can't do it. It's, it's, it's easy to sort of glamorize and, you know, but it's, it gets old. Yeah. Too much freedom. Too much freedom Too is much right. Freedom there's there's just... a lot of time in the day. <laughs> and and we, we oftentimes think, oh, man, this happens so fast. And, to, you know, today's gone. Tomorrow's gone. I don't have time for anything. You have a lot of time. It's just how you prioritize it. So you so did when you came back from that trip, did you actually get a job somewhere? I did. And I, where was that? So I was working at a call center in Daytona Beach and was doing kind of research around car dealerships and who we could call and target for stuff. Like it, it, you're, you're sensing my enthusiasm. Yeah, I, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, I was grateful to have a job uh-huh. and I needed a job. And so that. So were you hammering the phone lines? I was. So, so you started off as a nug, okay, call these, call these numbers, ask these people what kind of interior they'd like in their vehicles or whatever? It was actually direct to the dealerships. So I was trying to figure out, you know, I, I can barely remember. Uh-huh. It's trying to get more dealers onto to this marketing campaign that, that <sighs> the company was running. Check. And no part of you was thinking, here I am. I found it. I had very much not <laughs> arrived. <laughs> and then you had that job. Is that when you had that job is when September 11th happened? Correct. 
And, and how, what was your what was your thought pattern once September once you saw the the towers get hit? So if you remember, JFK Jr. had died in a Cessna mm-hmm. Cessna plane. I think it was a Cessna that he you know he was piloting yeah. and it went down and like off the coast of Long Island, something I think. like yeah. that, right? And and so you know that was kind of the initial reaction, and I think there was just general confusion. I mean, I woke up, I was getting ready to go to work with my, you know, button down and my khakis and stuff, right? Eating my cereal and I had the news on. And so I remember watching stuff go down and it just, there was just general confusion. And so I was confused as well. Like, oh, this is an accident. And then you just sort of watch it escalate. Mm -hmm. And it was obviously very clear that it wasn't an accident at all. For me, First plane hits, which I think I heard on the radio. So even when I hear a plane hit, their, you know, one of the Twin Towers, I'm like, oh, Cessna, you know, pilot doesn't know what he's doing, was probably foggy, whatever. He's taking a joy rod. That, that's horrible. And then, then I saw the images like somewhere, you know, saw the images on TV or something and of the first building of the first tower getting hit. And I thought, oh, wow. How does that happen? As soon as I saw the second, you uh, see that plane come in. Yeah. As soon as I saw the second one hit, I was like, "Oh, we're not, that was that was this is pre-planned terrorist attack." I, mean, I, I just got goosebumps thinking about how much rage I felt at that moment in time. So, how long did it take you to say to yourself, "You're going to go in the military"? Right. So, <laughs> the initial reaction was. I got to, this is, this is my mission. I got to figure out how to serve America, something greater than myself. The, the more practical side was joining the military in a time of war was scary. There was fear, human fear that was running through my veins about this is, that's a real decision. And the other part of it was, you know, the first death was Mike Spann. Mm -hmm. So Mike Spann was in, worked for the CIA and, you know, before that was a Marine, but they sort of glossed over that in the telling of it. You know, he was, a he was worked for the CIA and he was in Afghanistan, one of the first in. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that and sent my packet in to, to the CIA and a couple other of the alphabet soup agencies that were generally speaking in the DC area. And that's a really long process. So, you know, went through that entire process and met some good people along the way, met some of the the hiring folks at the agency. And I kept asking about, I didn't know anything. Okay. <laughs> I heard about, you know, SOG and like the, it's called ground branch, mm-hmm. right? That's the paramilitary d- branch of, of the CIA. That's where I wanted to be. And so I didn't know how to get there. And finally, you know, you make it through round after round after round of interviews with the agency and they get more sort of specific and you have one-on-one time with interviewers and you're encouraged to ask questions, which you should. I'm like, hey, so how do I get to do that kind of stuff? Like the mission that Mike Spann got, how do I do that? And there was this guy and we were in, you know, some office space, very, as you might expect, sterile looking office space in Northern Virginia. And this guy sitting at a desk, not, not too dissimilar to how we're sitting right now, looked right at me. He's like, look, we don't train our guys in the military. We take from the special operations branches and then they come and work for us. And I had this moment in my head. I'm like, damn, man, why didn't you tell me this like a year ago? (laughs) Right. And, and so 
that's when it clicked for me. And so now I'm resetting the clock, though, because I start going through military application processes at that time. And that's, you know, 2000, late 2002. And, you know, there's this perception out there was this perception. I, I think there's a lot of us who are working really hard to dispel it, that you either go to war or you go to jail. The military has a last option resort of you can't get a job somewhere else, so you should go join the military. And that's just patently false. And so, you know, it it was one of those things where a lot of people wanted to join the military. A lot of people with really, really stellar resumes in the aftermath of 9-11. We had a nation of people who said, send me. I want to go to war to fight for my country. Now, that's great for the country. It's hard if you want to go join the military. So, you know, I just graduated from college. Of course, I'm going to become an officer. And of course, I don't tell anyone in my family anything that's going on, right? So my hair was grown out. I was working out a lot to to sort of do the kind of physical training or physical fitness that I thought I needed to do in order to join the military and, and be of some value to someone in some godforsaken place downrange. And so they thought I was just going off the deep end. You know, I just graduated from this expensive college. I sort of didn't really have direction or purpose. Or Are what you was still I... working for the, uh, in the call center this whole so, time? <laughs> no. So I actually moved up to be closer to D.C. I wanted to be closer to where I thought the action was. And, and by action, I meant where service was happening. And to me, that was, that was New York and D.C., and so I moved up to D.C. I had some family up there. I, I worked as an analyst at a bank then, right, which is a great way to work 100 hours a week by Wednesday, mm. right, and sleep on the floor, you know, for a couple hours before your, your bosses, all 18 of them, come in the next morning with more stuff for you to do. And so I was up in D.C. for, for that period because th- the interview processes were – long and drawn out. And I didn't know where I wanted to go, but all those places were in DC. So it was like going through those processes there was a little bit easier. And also the, the military process. So my first place that I applied was to become a Marine Corps officer. And that just, I mean, kept going through, Hey, you've been selected to, to go to basic mm-hmm. officer candidate school. Officer candidate school in the right? basic school. Yeah. Right. And, and that just that kept not happening. And eventually I was like, man, the wars are just passing me by. Like it's time. So do, do what you got to do, but you need to do it now or you will regret this for the rest of your life. So I went down and then I started talking to, uh, I went and was going to go to the Navy recruiting center, which I did and asked about becoming an officer in the Navy. And how do I become a SEAL? And they're like, well, that takes forever. Right. And I'm like, well, I don't have forever because I want to go fight a war, right? So I walk next door to the, to the army recruiter, and he said the same thing, right? He's like, this takes forever, right? You, if you want to go be in special forces, that's, you, you can do that when you're a, a captain promotable or 03 promotable or, sorry, 02 promotable about to be a captain, I think was, was the, the time frame on that. So that's years away. Now, the idea of going and joining an infantry unit or something, it didn't appeal to me. I wanted to be, I mean, you have these grandiose notions of what you're capable of. And I I wanted to be the guy in the mountains hunting bin Laden. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And 
And so the guy sensed this. You know, these recruiters, they, they know when they've got something. He's like, well, we've got this special program, <laughs> right? You can go straight off the street and join special forces. It's an enlistment. I'm like, ooh, that kind of sounded like a, a bad word to me. Enlist, right? I mean, college degree, you have all these senses of, of what you're entitled to or what you should be doing with your life. And part of those are, are pressures that you're felt from outside forces. And there's no doubt expectations that family and loved ones they have for what your life should be, you know, the perfect life like Edward Norton and Fight Club right? Assigning value to the furniture in your house and what, what apartment you have and all these things that really don't matter. But you, you think about what you should do in life in order to, to be happy. And enlisting to go be a ground pounder in the army was, was a little bit removed from what I thought my direction should be. And yet that, that was my choice. It was do this or sit around and wait forever until they call and say, okay, now you're, you're validated and can go to become an, an officer. And man, I didn't know anything about this process. I didn't have anybody that I talked to about what people did in these jobs. Did you know any SF guys at all? No, and, and the, the total- <laughs> Did you know any Marine Corps officers? No, Did you know <laughs> no, and so it's like what you see Did in you the movies. Did you listen to Jocko podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the, the, the irony is that my next door neighbor that I lived next to in, in Florida growing up for, you know, since 92 was an officer, a special forces officer in the army. And it took until my mom found out, because I told her, that I'd enlisted, which just to jump to the, the, the end a little bit here, I, I ended up signing a five-year contract enlisting into the army where they guarantee that you can go to the schools. They, of course, don't guarantee that you'll pass. Right. And if this you don't 18, pass- 18 X-ray. 18 right? X-ray. So X-ray just basically means that 18 series is the MOS and the X-ray is the designator for, we don't know what your job specifically Within the within special forces will be if you pass it we'll assign it to you later. This is one of those questions I get asked all the time by people, which is you know should I go officer? Should I go enlisted? You know this is just really common for people to ask, and you know I was really lucky because I wouldn't change this. I enlisted, and I wouldn't change anything about my career. My career was ridiculously awesome and super lucky. And people ask me that question all the time. Um, it's really hard to get a SEAL officer billet, like as a, as you join the Navy. It's I think they I think there's about thirty a year, and there's thousands of people that apply for it. Like the Naval Academy takes fifteen, I think it's fifteen from the Naval Academy, and then fifteen from ROTC and OCS combined. So this is a tiny number. And so I always tell people, look, you can apply for that, but if you want to be a SEAL, you, you, you may end up just having to enlist. And the, at the same token is, I'm so glad I, I didn't want to go to college. Like, I wanted to, same as you. I mean, there was no war going on, but I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. I thought that there was, <laughs> I thought that there was SEALs all over the globe conducting covert operations, and I was going to go get some of that. Exactly. But... You know, so I was like ready to enlist and I wouldn't do it any other way. And I would, I ended up going to college when I was like 28 years old. And by then I was like, okay, I can, I can sit in a classroom now where I, when I was 18, 19, 20, I didn't want to sit in a classroom. I wanted a machine gun, you know, like a normal kid. So, 
Yeah, so I, I think for people that are on that fence, for and anybody that knows me or listens to me at all, I mean, all day long, I'll tell you that being a being a infantry soldier, being an infantry marine, I mean, those are being a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. I mean, any of those jobs are awesome, and they'll lead to real leadership, enlisted leadership positions, and and it's a great experience and a great jobs and. I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, um, and then on the officer side is like, well, you know, you're gonna, if you go in as an officer, you're gonna obviously be put in charge earlier. You'll end up with more leadership situations sooner. So there's there's benefits to it. But at the end of the day, uh, I think what happened to you is what happens to a lot of people. It's like the the path becomes clear, not because of what you want, but because of the way the world works. And so when, you know, figure out what your path, that path should become clear at some point, and then you say, okay, cool, that looks like my path, I'm gonna go. And one thing that I will say is, in the SEAL teams for sure, I'm pretty sure it's this way in the, in the Army and the Marine Corps, if you're a good enlisted human, and you make an effort to become an officer, it's easier to become an officer when you're an enlisted person than it is to do it coming from straight out. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true in the Army and the Marine Corps, but in the SEAL teams, it's absolutely true. It's, you know, you you will have an easier time getting selected if you were already in the SEAL teams for six years and now you wanna become an officer, it's, it's a little easier. But you can't count on it because the program that I did, they took 50 people to become officers out of the whole Navy. So out of 250,000 people, in the Navy, they took 50. That's not, those aren't great odds, but I don't know. I think the path, I think what happened to you is what happens to a lot of people, and you gotta say, okay, the, my path has been revealed by circumstances, and I'm gonna go for it. Yeah, you gotta do something. I mean, there's lots of other alternatives. You can do nothing, and you can regret it, and that's a really, that's the worst path of all. Yeah, well, that's another good point that you bring up, and this is something else that people ask me, you know, oh, should I do this now, or I got a good job offer, but I really wanna be in the military, or I wanna go to college, but I, whatever, they have a million, I don't wanna call them excuses, they have a million legitimate, what they believe to be reasons on why they should postpone, or possibly not even go into the military. And from my perspective, all these other opportunities you have in life will be there for a long time, but the military will not be. You know, That's a very you, true. I mean, I've I've yet to meet the person who served in the military that regretted it. Oh yeah. Everybody says I learned so much, and what you really learn is a perspective on life. And I don't care if you're an officer or you're an enlisted or whatever. You you learn about teamwork and camaraderie, not as posters on a on a words on a poster in a bathroom, but as just what it feels like, and and that becomes your northern star in life. You want to chase that for the rest of your life. I want to be a part of a team. I want to feel that reward of service to to a higher purpose than just myself. I want to help other people. And when you connect those dots, you you just, you need to go do it. Now, I, I really, I caution people against thinking, oh, well, I'm going to enlist so that I can become an officer. It's, it's very rare. And so you sort of say, it's not about the actual mechanics. It's about service. And you you get to pick your path. And you need to pick your path wisely. And you need to do it when you're young. When you're 20, here's what nobody tells you. You graduate from college or you're 20 years old or whatever. Your, your basic value 
in, in the universe is nothing. <laughs> You're just, you don't have wisdom or perspective. You don't know yourself. And that's the biggest part of this. You, you haven't been through enough adversity at a mature enough age, even if you've got a horrific childhood, you're not at a mature enough age to know yourself well enough as you get older. And so what the military does is it forces you through adversity to learn more about yourself, to how you'll respond to these kinds of challenges in life. And, and life's a really hard place for, for all of us. And you don't get good at doing hard things by only doing easy things. So take this job offer and this cush whatever that you got and wad it up and throw it away and find some cause that you really believe in to serve. And go, go do that and see what path that leads you to. Because for me, it's, it's got nothing to do at this point about, oh, well, you know, the specifics of, well, a career or however many years in the army. And it's got everything to do about the way of life that I want to lead, that I want others to lead with me, which is based upon the time that I spent in special forces. You talked about a five-year enlistment, which when I joined the Navy, I signed a six-year contract. God bless you. Give. Your recruiter got, he was, he got some high fives that and was some the, attaboys on that yeah, one. This, the, the program that I did was called the Dive Fairer program and it was a six year enlistment. That same thing, it gave you an opportunity to do the screening test <laughs> to go to BUDS. So this is just completely ridiculous. But yep. I remember thinking it seemed like a lot of people just couldn't, especially people like you're saying that were my age, whatever, 18, 19, 20 years old for them for for them and a little bit of me was like 6 years seemed like this e- eternal length of time and the reality is man 6 years is a joke i mean 6 years of my 20 year career went by and i can barely even remember 6 years so that's another thing that people got to overcome they got to overcome the fact that this seems like a huge chunk of your life but but the value that you're going to get out of it is infinitely worth Way more than for the rest of your for life. For the rest of your life, you well, get this. What thing. else? Are, where else are you going to find this in your twenties? Yeah, where no, else? You're not. You're not. You're, you're not. The, and it doesn't just have to be the military. There are a lot of other organizations that you know you can serve that are American needs. You can go be a teacher. You can go. There's lots of things that you can do. But ultimately, you need to find something with a, a mission and purpose that you really believe in, and just pour your heart into it. Work really, really hard. Learn what that feels like. Yeah, and I think you you make the good point of it, working working really hard at something. Well, working really hard at being a soldier, if that's what you are passionate about, is a lot easier than working really hard in a call center when you, when you don't like it, or working really hard as an analyst when it's like it's not what you want to do and you don't see any greater purpose behind it. I mean, you give me all day long to teach people about leadership, which is what I do right now. I do that and I can't even stop doing it. I mean, it's like I, I work with a company and I'm, I'm so engaged with them. It's like awesome. But then you, if you were to remove me from that and put me into a, you know, staring at spreadsheets in for, for a bank, it would be hard for me to, you know, really find the passion in doing that. Yeah, and, and people are built differently as well. Indeed. I mean, some people are, 
you know, some people love the idea of going straight to college at 18 and, and working really hard at college and, yeah. and doing really well. And they could do that. And I, that was me as well. I was, I was doing, I was working with a, uh, a company that made candy, candy, good candy. Um, not really like what you think of when you think of good candy, more like just sort of the, the normal Well, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you leave and they have like mints. Oh, I see. And you grab a handful of mints or whatever. They make that kind of candy. So this isn't like some gourmet candy that they put on a pedestal and talk about. No, it's not that. But anyways, I'm, 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 so I'm speaking to this company. I'm, I'm with them. I'm working with them. And they were talking about this candy and all their different variants of candy and what they were going to do strategically and where they needed to improve the market share. Man, they were into it. They were into it. And so I, th- that, that's, they found something and they were into it. And I was like, okay, I was like, this is awesome. I'm glad that these folks are totally <laughs> into this. And so I guess to your point, if you are into, you know, if you're into economics and you go to a bank and that's what you're into and you love trying to figure out trends and you, hey, that's awesome. And, and, and you should proceed down that path. But if you're not into it, then maybe you should look for a different path. So I'll tell one more story about this because it, this is important, I think, for kids <laughs> to, to understand. So I'm in the, in the Navy, I'm in the SEAL teams, I'm on a ship, we're out in the middle of the ocean, it's pitch black, there's massive waves, it's raining, and we're getting ready to launch our little Zodiac boats you know, and you're just you're just launching into death. I mean, it, not not really. You're launching into just complete darkness, right? And there's huge waves, and they're and it's on a on a ship that has a well deck, so the the ramp is going to go down on this thing, and and we're just going to have our boats there and just jump into the ocean. And there's a there's a navy guy, a bosun's mate, which means he's like a deck hand guy, but he runs all the all the launching of you know ships or launching of the little boats and bringing boats back on you know he runs all that stuff it's important job in the navy a bosun's mate so as the the ramps going down the rains pouring in the waves are crashing and this guy looks at me and he says and you know it's a hard job being a bosun's mate cuz you're doing all this kind of work of you know, loading vehicles, unloading vehicles, loading boats, unloading boats. You're in charge of making sure that the the equipment is maintained. I mean, it's like a hard job. Anyways, the boats, everything's smashing and crashing and water. And the guy looks at me and he goes, man, I'm glad I don't have your job. <laughs> and I looked back at him and I said, well, you know what? I'm glad I don't have your job. So let's make a deal. You do your job and I'll do mine. And and it was totally, it was awesome. It made sense. And the guy kind of laughed and we smiled. And then I launched out in the middle of the ocean to go out and spend, you know, four hours in a transit to get to the beach, to swim across the beach, to get onto the beach, to do a three-day reconnaissance, freezing cold. Hey, that's what we do. And that guy was going to, you know, be on that ship. But that's another thing that just... I, I was in a perfect place. I loved doing what I was doing. And he was in a perfect place because he loved doing it. You know, he was part of something that was big and part of something that was bigger than himself. You know, being in the Navy, it was cool. But you got to find, if you can, find something that you really like doing. Like just don't hate your life. Yes. That's I mean, good, do not hate your life. Yeah, we do not recommend hating your life. Never. Change, if something goes on for too long and you do not like 
waking up in the morning, then yep. you've got to change something. Yes, and just to make sure, because I'll get asked this about a million times, and I've been asked it, that doesn't mean you walk into work tomorrow and throw your um, computer at your supervisor and tell them, I'm going to do something I love, and then you're homeless. No, don't do that. <laughs> what you do is you figure out an exit strategy, you come up with a plan, you actually think about it, you take a year to save money, you figure out what you're going to do, that's what you do. Two jobs, one paycheck. Sometimes the second job is moonlighting is a, a passion, a hobby. You try to turn that into reality. Work really hard. Yeah, yeah. There, There's not shortcuts in this. It's not, hey, let me, let me fire up a brand new Instagram account and that's my new passion in life and I'm gonna become a millionaire. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? Find something that you really love to do and two jobs, one paycheck. That's the deal. Yeah, or four jobs, one paycheck. Or, or more, <laughs> sure. 10 jobs, one, do, I mean, figure it out. And, and by the way, traveling the world in hopes of finding yourself is not a good plan. Mm-hmm. That's my general, that's my general experience. Yeah, it's interesting. You actually found yourself while you're sitting in a, being an analyst or sitting there on a call center, you're like, okay, this much I know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of knew I didn't want to do that. I, I just think there's a lot of people out there that, that want, especially in America, where there's so much opportunity, we can do so many things with our lives here. There's just so much freedom we don't even realize, and yet we feel enslaved to other people's expectations. And so we start falling into that trap of, well, I got to go do this, and I got to earn this much, and I got to chase that. Did your, did your family meaning your mom, your grandparents, your friends, did they have enough understanding of the military to realize that, were they disappointed when you enlisted? Were they like, oh no, you're officer material, son? They were absolutely, my mom cried in the kitchen. She would have cried if, (laughs) she would have cried if I wanted, if I told her I was becoming an officer either uh, as well. I mean, it was just one of those things where it, it was a time of war. And that's hard for moms. And God bless moms. I think they have the hardest job on the planet. And, and so, you know, that was just a really difficult time. You know, we had, it was October of 2003 that I, that I enlisted. And, you know, the war in Iraq had kicked off. I felt like I'd missed it. You know, you see them toppling the statue of Saddam. And I felt like I'd missed it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, so I, I came back from the recruiting station and I told my mom in the kitchen and my brother was sitting on the, my brother's younger and he was sitting on the, the counter and I, I'd missed some calls and some stuff and my mom was upset with me and generally my mom just didn't know what I was doing with my life either, right? Because she had expectations that I was going to do something important with my life and I wasn't doing that. And I told her that I'd en- enlisted to go join special forces and she just lost it. <laughs> And, and then there were this sort of... How long was it between your enlistment and when you left for boot camp? Like three weeks. Say. Oh, really? So maybe I wow. enlisted around October 1st and I left 20, 28th of October. Pretty quick turn, turn time yeah. there. Yeah. Okay, so mom's soul is crushed. Yeah, and then there's the aftermath with the grandparents and my just the, the family. So as we talked about earlier, I mean, my mom was really young when she had me. And so a lot of the rest of my family took a very vested interest in me. And I'm the person that I am. There's no such thing as a self-made man. And I'm a product of the time and effort that they spent to help raise me and including my dad. I visit, spent tons of time with my dad in Ohio in the summer and his parents. And I just had a lot of people in my life 
And there was just a lot of questioning about this decision. Any, was there anyone that said, right on, good call? My dad was actually almost relieved. Yeah. He just said, okay, that sounds about right. Yeah. And, but, you know, everyone worries. Like, you have to just accept that. And so selfishness is something that gets thrown around as a very negative thing. And, you know, part of what you have to do to make yourself happy is you have to be selfish. You have to say, and call it whatever you want, but this makes me happy. I need to do this regardless of the consequences. And it's not just a soldier that goes to war. The family is very much a part of that experience. And I completely shut them out throughout this entire process and then just dropped a bomb on them and said, I'm, I'm leaving in a month. I'm going to go to, go to boot camp and then I'm going to war. And, you know, uh, there was a part of me that really felt like that. I knew I needed to do it, but it's, it's a scary thing. I mean, it's l- a lot less scary to me now. I mean, the idea of, hey, you've got to go back on the next smoking bird to Afghanistan or, or Iraq. I mean, it's still something if you're not scared, at least a little bit, if you don't get an adrenaline rush, if someone's shooting at you, there's a problem. You know, like if you're not mortally aware of, of of what's going on, it, there's probably something not quite right. And and yet at that time, it was just so unknown. I mean, I, I pretty much resigned myself to the fact that I was going to die. And I'm sure my mom did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you show up at boot camp. How many hours or days was it into boot camp that you said to yourself, Oh man, I screwed up. <laughs> I could not believe how hard boot camp was. <laughs> I mean, how miserable it was. It was, and I was a little older, so I was 24. Mm-hmm. And I was like, had a little bit more perspective, maybe, than some of the, the guys were 17 and 18, which maybe that wasn't a good thing. <laughs> I, I love the fact that I was really young going through all, because. You're just too dumb to figure. I mean, I just, I would, I would not want to go through. When I was 24 years old, I wouldn't have wanted to go through boot camp. I mean, I would have done it, of course, but it would have sucked even more because you understand the world a little bit, a little (laughs) bit better. You, you've had some kind of a taste of freedom, and I mean, I just was like, hey, okay, you want me to do this? I'm gonna do it. It was like, I was the perfect recruit, really, in a lot of ways, because I was just young and dumb. So I suffered. Get some. <laughs> the, the, the biggest thing I suffered from was just overthinking stuff because I, I would sit and why are they doing this? That's the worst thing yeah. you can ask yourself. Yeah. Why? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Just do it. You have to learn how to just do. Yes, and so you do. this is one of those things that you need to learn in your 20s. So yeah. the, what will make a huge impact is who is telling you what to do. Because if you align yourself with something that you don't believe in, with a person you don't really respect, and they're telling you what to do, you're going to adapt your life to their way at that time. And the, the military, it, it's, it's got a very powerful way of creating very strong people. Wherever you started, you will end up stronger for your time in the military. And that all begins with this basic common experience of basic training. And I, I just I couldn't believe how how hard it was and how just it was 
completely void of all social norms and etiquettes yeah. and all of those things. I mean, nothing was off limits in terms of their ability to denigrate you for any reason whatsoever. In Navy boot camp, you are in uh, open bay barracks, obviously, and then the toilets are just on the wall. There's 20 toilets in a row. Yeah. Like you're gonna sit down on the toilet and then you're gonna be looking at 19 other people that are also sitting. There's no privacy whatsoever, zero. It's all gone. It's just zero. And then the other thing is, because this is, people always, you know, they listen to the podcast and they, hey, I just didn't listen to the Marine Corps. Hey, I just listened to the Army. They'll send me that message. And I'm like, okay, 72 hours into boot camp, you're going to hate me. <laughs> like, just give it another few more weeks. Because the thing that we're not used to, even as an 18-year-old, is you're not used to your freedom being completely gone. Complete, there's zero freedom when you get to boot camp. None, zero. You're gonna be doing what someone else tells you to do. You have no freedom to do anything. You can't even go to the bathroom when you wanna go to the bathroom. You Drill have, sergeant, can I go use the latrine? Yes, you have I mean, it's, no freedom whatsoever. And that is, as you said, very important lesson to learn on life. You, you learn to appreciate your freedom and you also learn to deal with the fact that hey, just because I, some, I can't control this aspect of my life doesn't mean I can't control other aspects of my life. And that's an important thing to figure out as a young person. And you kind of learn to play the game too, right? Like look, there's no way around this. This drill instructor, this instructor is gonna do this. And the only possible thing I can do, I mean other than quitting, is just to shut up and just do what you're supposed to do. It's like, okay, cool. That's, no options is a great option. Yeah, yeah. Do it or do it or quit. And you yeah. can't quit boot camp. You can quit buds or special force qualification course. You can't quit. You're you literally go AWOL. Yeah. And then they go find you. And one guy went AWOL and they found him at the gas station, you know, off base or whatever, trying to get someone to buy him some coffee or something, whatever, and they brought him back and you know, then he was back into it, except yeah. he was a guy with a bullseye on him because he's the guy that went AWOL. And they dragged him back. And it's, it's, I can't stress enough what you just said. Like, you have zero privacy. And, and this is a culture shock for a lot of people because this is the whole, everything that we do, our system is based around a culture of, of I. Right? At its basic level now, you have your iPhone, you have your individually wrapped everything, you have, you know, me, 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 right? And that's going to make you happy or that's, you know, you, everything is, is just centered around the individual. And the, the army just doesn't prescribe to that. Privacy, I mean, there's all these privacy debates now, social media and your data and all of the privacy, as if that's just some right, that you have. And mm -hmm. that's fine. There's, there's some nuance to that. Well, let me just tell you, 0% of that exists in the military. Zero. <laughs> like you said, I mean, there's just a lot of naked dudes, you know, yeah. with, with open latrines and, and it's just, that's what it is. Yeah. And you learn that that's kind of a primordial way to exist. And you are much more in touch with how our species evolved over our entire evolution of, of, of homo sapiens when you join the military and you, you just become in tune with that. Yeah, and I think the most important message that gets relayed into your brain, whether you're conscious of it or not, 
is crystal clear, and that is this team and this organization is more important than you are. And your little wants and needs and desires and your personality doesn't matter when it's compared to the needs of this team and this group and this mission. And that's an important, another very important thing to learn as a young person. You're not at the center of the universe, period. The end. <laughs> and, and so now as that evolved for me, one of, one of the most important lessons, and this is where you have to spend a lifetime mastering it, is to understand that to be a great teammate, first you have to be a great individual. And then you have to submit to the team. Because anybody on your SEAL teams or my special forces teams, these are people that can do anything with their lives. They, if they commit themselves, they will do it. And so you have to become a master of your trade, a true professional. And, and that, that requires the discipline that you have as an individual when nobody's looking over your shoulder to just continually refine and sharpen, sharpen the, the blade, right, your own. And then, though, you have to realize that it's not about you. It's, it's, a, it's a balancing act for an entire lifetime. And the more, that, the more that you do both of those in concert, the more rewarding life will be. Yeah, and really the thing that drives you to be as good as you can is because you know your teammates are gonna be relying on you. And if you can't deliver, that's like the worst thing in the world, me being in the SEAL teams, like the worst thing in the world for someone and the teams for a good SEAL is like, oh, my teammates were counting on me and I couldn't, deliver for him. That's the that's the lowest of the low. Hey, look, somebody looks at me and says, oh, Jocko's not that fast or Jocko couldn't do enough pull-ups or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, that's on me, no big deal. But when they needed me to climb that ladder or they needed me to finish that road march or move to that position and I couldn't do it, that's, that's what always, always drives like a good team guy to be better is like they don't want to let their friends down, period. It's the ultimate motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Like to be a part of that community and, and the community sharpens itself. I mean, you get guys and competition, competition breeds excellence. Yeah, for sure. And, and so you've got this world, whereas iron sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens a friend. And that is just every day on the team. Everything's a competition. Everything's a competition. So when you get done with boot camp, and then what you go to AIT? Yeah, for me, I, they kind of were lumped in together because, you know, it was just infantry, chunk. boot camp and infantry, AIT, whatever it was. It was just the same entire crew at the same place in Fort Benning over the winter in Georgia, which was just, I mean, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's really, really cold. And they just, they, they put you in formation at Odark 34 or whatever. S- stand there. You just stand there and shiver. <laughs> I mean, it is just horrific. The army, <laughs> the army beats the, the, the Navy at that as far as just formations and just standing there. Because the only, the only real, I guess the only real army school I ever did that's like sort of a, a basic army school is like, I went to airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And like, hey, we're going to get a formation and we're going to stand out here. Until when? Until we're done standing out here. Yep. <laughs> just standing at a position of attention. That's another thing. You like learn to deal with the fact that y- you're not always going to be in control of what's happening and how you're going to deal with it. You're going to suck it up and stand there. Guess what? 
stand there. Suffer in silence. <laughs> yeah. You know, th- this is where all of these phrases come from, yeah. right? You've got, you've got so much creativity because from these guys standing in this formation with all this available time to sit and think about how miserable their life is, right? And then you say, how do you come up with something sort of cute? Oh, suffer in silence, you know, just stuff like that. And yeah, there's a lot of lines, lots of formations. Like the more horrible things that happen to you, the more proud you are and the more you relish in those old days. And that's where pride comes from. You know, pride comes from like, oh, we did really hard things and they sucked. And we're proud of them. <laughs> yes. And, and so the other part is this is how you become a better leader. It's how you become more confident. It's, it's incremental. You don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden you're Abraham Lincoln, right? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You can't just sit and read books all day. You have to actually take books and apply them to harder situations incrementally. And yeah. what the, the military taught me that teaches all of us is what you're capable of doing and what you're capable of enduring and it pushes your body and it pushes your mind in miserable, horrific ways. And you gain confidence from that. And you just, you climb one rung higher on the ladder. And then when life gets really, really hard, then you can draw upon what you learned throughout that process of the last rung that you, you climbed. Yeah, people, I got asked that recently. Um, you know, people are always looking for kind of the sound, a good sound bite, a good uh, clickbait title for an article. But you know, someone asked me something along the lines of, so like, what was the moment that all this leadership stuff came, like became clear to you? And I was like, there wasn't one moment. You know, I learned this stuff, one mistake over a little mistake, over a big mistake, over a little mistake, over years and years and years and years and going, okay. And even now, I'll make a mistake tomorrow. I'll do something dumb this afternoon and learn something else. And that's, you're right, that is what the military does. And it is important that, when you realize something as stupid as, hey, you're gonna stand in formation until it stops. And that could be two hours, three hours, you don't even know how long it's gonna be. And guess what? When you get done with that, okay, cool, now we're done with that. And now the next thing you face, you go, oh, you know what? I, I'm, I can get through this. I can get through this. I can keep my mouth shut. Or I can drive forward, or I can stand here, or I can stay in the push-up position, or I can stay awake on this patrol, or I can sit here and, and freeze in this cold weather layup position in the mountains. I can get through this, and it won't make a difference when I'm done. So let's, let's just buckle in and get it done. <laughs> so the evolution of that for, for me was <laughs> we were the early phases of the, the Special Force Qualification course. The cadre lined us all up. And not just for formation, but he goes, all right, here's the task at hand. You're going to lunge around this building until I get tired. And <laughs> like, so, you know, at that point, standing in formation didn't sound so bad. You know, lunge around the building until I get tired. And you're sitting there thinking, of course, you don't say it. But, but Kadri, how are you going to get tired? You're not doing the lunging. Yeah. And of course, that's the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you just sort of do it until... Yeah. Till you don't. <laughs> Until it's over. So that's so that's how you kicked off the Q course? Is that the next thing in your well, evolution? Well, so I here? went well, I went to airborne, airborne school, school next. So, you know, went straight from graduating boot camp to then, you know, you're checking in over at those barracks at airborne school and that's three weeks and and then I got the made the trip to to uh Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So I drove from Benning to Bragg and checked in and so part of the 18 x-ray program is, is that there, there were preparation courses. 
So, you know, special forces selection mm -hmm. is done out at Camp McCall, but there was a prep course that happened at Fort Bragg. It's a prep course for selection. Correct. Because you're coming just off yeah, the street. Yeah. So you, how long was that? That was three weeks maybe. And were they trying to teach you anything or are they just trying to get you physically ready? So the main skill that they had to show you was rucking and land navigation. So all mm -hmm. land navigation for us is 45 pounds dry in the, the pine forest of North Carolina. And you do a lot of rucking, but but the skill is how to how to use map and compass mm -hmm. in order to find points. And besides that, they just there was a lot of training, quote quote, to get us ready for for the real selection. Which is what they're making you hump, basically. It, well, no, there was a ton of of PT. I mean, a ton right. in in that period of time. And, and these were. So part of and this was you said this was called the prep course. This was called SOPC, so Special Operations Preparation and Conditioning. And so what was really really cool, in other words, get some. Get, it was just get some <laughs> all the time. And and so what was really really cool though was you had this was uh, early 2004, spring of 2004. And our cadre were some of the guys who had been first into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They were the horse soldiers in there that had literally come back. I mean, those are the guys that I wanted to be. They were my heroes. And everybody gets uncomfortable. If they're sitting here, it would be hardest to say, you're my hero, bro, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll tell you that they were my heroes because that's where I was in life. I mean, they had, they had gone and fought the Taliban for us. To, to avenge what happened on 9-11. And now they're telling me to go run and rock and do push-ups. And half the time they're doing it with us because they're about to go back to war. I mean, yeah. the way this works is you come back and you do some time as a, as a cadre or as an instructor, and then you go back on, on an ODA, on an Operational Detachment Alpha, an A-team, if you will, and you deploy again. So, you know, they were going to stay in physical, great physical shape as well. They didn't do everything with us, of course. R roll around in the gig pit and do all that <laughs> stuff. They, they'd spent their time doing that already. But, you know, how do you not, how do you quit on them? Th I mean, these are the things that went through my head. I mean, it was just. Do people quit during the prep oh, course? The, so it ended up being the prep, the prep course was a lot harder than actual special forces selection for me. And for most of us, I mean, the pass rate for those of us who went through this prep course was something like 95%. And how many people did you start the prep course with and how many people washed out? Um, the prep course, there was significant. I don't remember all the numbers exactly. Let's say we started out with 200 and not, you know, maybe 60 passed or something, the prep course, and then mm -hmm. all 60 of us passed selection. Oh, I mean, wow. it was something to that effect, right? Now, you've Does already, everyone go through the prep course? No, it was only, only for the guys for the that came straight off the street. Got and so the, the, the Army would pull, I mean, any job you have in the Army, you can put your packet in to yeah. go to Special Forces selection. You don't get to go to the prep course because you're supposed to know rucking and land navigation, or you have to train on your own. Two, you know, you want to do that, two jobs, one paycheck. Yeah. You figure it out. And you, you find time when you're at your unit deployed in Korea to go rock and to learn land nav because it's, or to, to stay proficient. And, and so, yeah, so the prep course ended up being, it was one of my favorite schools in the whole army. I mean, how, I just how loved much, it. How much did you guys rock? It was just, it just was like, so. Would you guys rock every day? So short answer is if it's not every day, it's just about every day. Mm -hmm. And and so for us, I mean, the the mechanics of the Q course are all land navigation based in the pine forest of Fort Bragg. You always have, you start out 
on the kind of timed iterations, it's 45 pounds dry, right? So that means not counting water, not counting consumables, uh, stuff like that. But land navigation meant, you know, you go from point A to point B, point B to point C. And when you, mm-hmm. you meet cadre at the various points or you meet them at the end and you, you show them the codes that you found on the the spots that you went right. to, whatever the case may be, they verify that you did the route correctly. You're doing all of that with a rucksack on. So you just learn the way of the ruck. I mean, and it just becomes a, an extension of your body. You're moving with that ruck and it is just a really powerful experience to have that with you and to get so strong with that ruck on your back all the time. And then there's ruck PT. You know, you take your Alice pack and you put it above your head and now start lunging or, you know, you're, it's just, the ruck is just your thing. It's, you have your rifle, but we didn't do a lot of marksmanship stuff in the Q course at all. I mean, there's a couple days at the range, but once you get to your, once you get to your team, there's a ton, yeah, yeah. you know, but everything is just with the ruck. And then you, you advance to patrolling and the rucks get even heavier. And then you have, you know, your MOS phase. I went and became a, a communication sergeant. So it was ah, so radios. 18 Echo. 18 Echo, exactly. So that was radios and stuff. But, you know, there was rucks and <laughs> well, it was a ton of PT. I, I was a radio man too. And uh, I didn't go to the 18 Echo course, but I went to the the SEAL equivalent at the time, which was out on the East Coast. And yeah, well, to say that you carry a lot of weight is a very broad understatement. Batteries don't weigh nothing. Radios yeah. don't weigh nothing. Just yeah. like bullets and, and all of that stuff. And they don't weigh nothing. So you have to get comfortable moving weight. And they don't explicitly teach you how to ruck. This is one of the things that I'm, I, I want to help impact that part of it because they don't, there's not a sit down lesson. Hey, this is how your body's going to adapt to mm-hmm. rucking. This is the weight you should start at. This is how, <clears throat> this is how you, you grow that over time. They just say, Hey, this is all the stuff you're going to carry. Go do it or, or do it or don't. Right. Now, when you haven't put a ruck on for a while and like, this is something I always remember. Like, let's say I was out doing uh, close quarters combat or mount or something where we weren't really wearing a ruck. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, okay, well now we're going to the desert and it's time to ruck up. The first, when you put that thing on and you take, because when you first put it on, you're like, oh, okay, no factor. And then probably like the first 45 minutes of a, of a ruck hump, you go, this is just going to suck. And then over a couple of days, you're like, okay, this is just the way it is. And then eventually after two weeks or three weeks of that kind of training, you actually become accustomed to it and you come used to it. And that's where, when you're talking about getting strong, you, you can, you get strong, your body, your body adapts to this, this weight that you're going to have on your shoulders and your back, your hips and your legs. I mean, the other part of this though, is the military takes the fun out of just about everything. Okay, they can't take the fun out of camaraderie, but everything else, like, oh, you want to go jump out of airplanes? It'll be awesome. Was airborne school awesome? Because for me, it wasn't awesome. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> right? I mean, want to go be scuba diving master, right? Was was that yeah, yeah. fun, Jocko? Yeah, yeah. yeah you know? no, people ask me all the time, like, oh, so do you still dive? I'm like, no. <laughs> that was, for me, diving is being at 
12 feet in the water, complete blackness, staring at a compass <laughs> for four hours and freezing. That's what diving is for me. Like this, every time I see like a person in the tropics looking at fish and they're in- Their little they're, yeah, fins. Yeah, their little fins. It's just like, you, you know, have no idea. So, so rucking is not as simple as- Oh, it's it just sucks when you first do it. I mean, the military forty five dry, and you're expected to move really fast. That's a that's not what I would recommend as a beginner's weight, right? Now, it just in the army, that's kind of what it was. How good were you at rucking? So I was not good at a lot of things. I was I I, I had to learn how to not overthink stuff. I, I you know, rucking was my thing. I mean, I'm I got really long legs. And it just, it came easy to me. Mm-hmm. So more weight, load me up. And, you know, when we would go on our patrols, they would not put me at point, right? Because when you're at point, you're yeah. sort of setting the pace and getting the haste slow down. I mean, I'm just, my, I'm 6'4". My legs are really long. I don't, you know, other things came a lot harder to me. Can you win a sprint? A 200, a 100 meter sprint, will you win that no, in a group? No, absolutely not. Will you win a... Will you win a six-mile run? No. I would, I would do okay at, at the running part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a cardiovascular part to, to rucking. And, and at the time, I— Would you win a 10-mile ruck hump? So I was, I was always very, very competitive with that. I mean, top few guys. I, I'm similar to that. Like, I was not the fastest sprinter at all. I was not the fastest, you know, six-mile run. But with a rucksack on, it was like an equalizer for me. And uh, ended up our physiolo- physiological guys were like, yeah, you have medium twitch muscle. That's what they said, which they, they didn't really discover this medium twitch. They're like, yeah, you're not super fast in a sprint and you're not great with this long endurance. But this thing where you have weight to move and for a long time, mm. that's what you're good at. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Cool with me. And it was really good for being a radio man because I always had all this extra weight. And I could always kind of do good with it, you know. And not that I'm some stellar ruck humper, but it was better. I was better at that than I was at sprinting. I was better at that than I was at distance running. And it was something that was very, I was very lucky to have that because, like I said, carrying a radio is, uh, it sucks carrying a radio. And if you're not like, have, if you don't have some kind of propensity for it, it's going to be a real problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, the rucks are really heavy. I mean, the, the heaviest ruck I carried in the, the Q course was 125 pounds. We had to jump in with that and then ruck that for a day. And that was the culminating exercise called, yeah. called Robin Sage. And so when a lot of times military folks will say rucking sucks, it's like, yeah, that kind of rucking really sucks, right? And then what you do is you, you show up to where you're supposed to be and you dig fighting positions, right? And you, you know, and then the cadre comes and, and he blows you out of those fighting positions with arty sims, right? Okay, time to go, yeah. right? And then you go and you dig more fighting positions and you don't sleep and you don't eat and you got a rucksack on your back and you say, man, rucking sucks. Like, well, it's not just the rucking that sucks. <laughs> uh, it's it's um, another one of those things where, yeah, I guess the military makes it bad, but yeah, when you get done with it, you feel good. Some of the best physical experiences of my entire life have come after a long ruck and you take that ruck off and you sit down, sort of the, the rucksack flop, it's called. You just sort of <laughs> sit down on the ruck and then you take the shoulder straps off and you can 
feel the blood flow just going back everywhere in your body. And it's like your whole body feels like it does after you take ski boots off. And it's just so awesome. You can just feel what you did. I just love it. (laughs) Uh, So how long is the communications part of your, like how long was the 18 uh, 18 echo 18 course. Echo it course. was like three months. And so it, it was, did you learn Morse code? I was the first class that did not learn Morse code. So it would have been six months week week. <laughs> <laughs> I le- I had to learn Morse code, which I thought was completely stupid. And the guy that was teaching us the class was like, in the event of a nuclear Holocaust, Morse code will be the only thing punching through the ionosphere. And I'm like, Sounds good to me, bro. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, life has risk, right? And when you're when you're running the schoolhouse or whatever, you have to weigh however many thousand guys a year oh, yeah. wasting or not wasting, but spending three months of oh, their yeah. life no, on no, Morse no. code I, versus I support this decision. going don't to fight the war. Yeah, you know? don't get me wrong. I support this decision. It was not very. It didn't make it a lot of sense when I did it. So it's so it's a three month school that you went to. It was three months, and it was run by these. God bless them. It was these two third group guys named Blade and Razor. I mean, just you, you run in your military career, and you have these instructors that really just teach you things about life. And it's it's never because they make it easy, but they they give you a why. You know, this is important because, and you know, they had just they were dive. They were dive guys within SF, which is just, it's just another suck school that you go to down in Key West. And it's a real suck school, not a gentleman's course at all. And you're already a Green Beret and you go do that. And then you join a dive team and it's just another sort of notch, right, that you have. And so they take their physical fitness within our community even just a little bit more. And they come back and they basically said, hey, there's going to be no slugs that come through this course ever, right? And so, I mean, it was just, you would show up first thing in the morning and Blade would drive his F950 or whatever it was. This thing was just enormous. And he was blasting his music. And he would say, welcome to Pain Roulette, right? And it was basically like, we're going to play a song. And you're going to do an exercise for that entire song. And, you know, when Stairway to Heaven comes on and you're doing push-ups, <laughs> that sucks. But the thing was is he was doing it with us. It's like, look, I'm going to go back to third group when I'm done here. I'm going to take a team and we're going to go back to Afghanistan. And, and we need to be ready. And you all need to be ready. And those who stress the, the seriousness of the job and the ways that you can become a professional in your trade, those are the ones that you respect the most, that you, you, you yearn to please them because you respect them. And, and that was how I felt in that course. So it was, again, physical fitness was just the foundation and you have to have it in the community. You have to be able to do the work physically in order to fight for your, for your country. And so, yes, we learned some skills, but most of the training was kind of outdated, right? We didn't deal with gun trucks setups. We didn't deal with any of the things that we were actually going to go do in war. We learned the basics of radio functionality and stuff like that. And we learned how to carry really heavy rucksacks full of batteries and radios. Did you string up HF antennas and we did. trees? Yes. That was one of the go, no go events. And it's, you know, it, there, there's a lot of excuses that you can, actually claim that a reality when it comes to to being a radio guy because how all that stuff happens it's 
sunspots and you know the the universe didn't want this com the 11 year sunspot cycle <laughs> uh sir there's uh, sunspots in the ao today and you know but ultimately you have to just keep trying it's like anything else you yeah. have to just persevere and figure out how to make your shots i used to be so kind of psycho and fanatical about making comms like that was my job and i was gonna make comms and i had in my, one of my evaluations it said made communications 100% of attempts. And I was like, yeah. Cause they, they asked, you know, they asked for us to submit bullets, you know, like, you know what, you know, I was like an E4 in the teams. And they're like, I said, made communications 100% of the time, which I was very, very proud of. Cause as you know, that was not yeah, an easy task awesome. to accomplish. I mean, yeah. A hundred percent. That's the standard. One hundred percent comms. I was like, because I would just be a psycho about, and what that meant was, see, what that really meant was, I would come up with communication plans that had, you know, multiple backups. Where, hey, look, this this comm window didn't work, so that's then you'd bump to this one, and that one didn't work, you could bump to this one. So eventually, I'm going to get comms. I'm going to make it happen. One hundred percent of the time. <laughs> but so look, did you gain confidence from that? Of oh, course, yeah. of course yeah, yeah. you did, right? And, and is that the kind of confidence that you you draw upon later in life when life gets really, really hard? I mean, all you had to do was figure out how to move move a little bit and you know make sure the canopy wasn't covering wherever your shots had to be made or whatever. But later in life, life gets really hard, and you draw upon, hey, I know how to do this. I just keep yeah. persevering, and I'll get it. We'll get it. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else in the Q course that kind of surprised you or you had like trouble with? So it goes back to kind of overthinking stuff. And the, the best example that I have of this is, you know, you learn the differences in ambushes, right? Techniques. There's a linear ambush and there's an L-shaped ambush, right? And there's sectors of fire and where's the enemy coming from? You know, it's, it's terrain and all these various factors dependent. In the cadre, there was, you know, our team of, say, 15 or so, and he's giving us a class on this, which is sort of what you, you referenced in the intro here. Sure, you have the opportunity to ask questions. Don't ask questions. <laughs> you know, that kind of deal. And, of course, I ask a question, you know, college boy, right? <laughs> I'm like, so, cadre, I don't really understand the difference or why we would choose a linear ambush here instead of an L-shaped ambush. And it was, hey, you, go drag your face in the dirt. <laughs> and, and until you reach that spot over there and think about it, because this is this is the ambush as I've taught it. Right. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, you know, I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm just going to do exactly what I'm told. And and that that took time to, to really sink in. And, you know, special forces in theory is a place where you're supposed to think critically and you're supposed to ask questions and you're supposed to do all these things. And you are. You just have to learn when to do that and when not to. And you have to trust the judgment of the guys around you. And, you, you know, that took some time for me. And then the the other two big things were that infill in Robin Sage with a 125-pound rucksack for a day. And then, you know, that, that, was, that was horrific. And every Green Beret you ever talk to, if you mention the Sage infill, they will cringe just a little What's bit. What's the distance? Uh, I mean, it was – all I remember is – you're maybe moving a, a mile an hour. Mm -hmm. I mean, 125 pounds patrolling through the pine forest and you're doing it for 18 hours. So they eventually put me in charge of the communication course at SEAL Team 1. And I only ran two of them, I think. 
and we would weigh the guys on insert. It was a six-day recon, mm. and they would all be 120, 110 to 130 pounds of gear, and it was, it was so savage, this course that I put these guys through, that, you know, when I look back at my life, <laughs> <laughs> I think, man, those guys were ready for anything, and this is like 1997. Like, there was, no, I was, I was, um, we'll say I wanted them to be ready, and they were ready. They probably never got tested that way again for the rest of their lives. So, I mean, the Sage Info was the culminating exercise of the Special Forces qualification. Yeah, course. yeah, no, that's it, it, you got to bring it right. Yeah. If you're up there and you're setting the training agenda, you say this. This needs to be something memorable, and it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These guys came out of the field like new people, and and had they had. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. These one guys lied to me, and um, I they they I got up to their layup point, and I said, "Hey, you guys missed a comm window. What happened?" And they kind of looked at me, and so I separated the team, and I started asking. What kind of antenna, you know, well, no, we were up for the comm window, we just didn't make qualms. And I was like, oh, because meanwhile, I'm monitoring everything. And they said, so one group, I said, what kind of antenna did you set up? And one guy said, like, a long wire. And then I said, they asked the other guy, what kind of antenna did you guys set up? He said, oh, a horizontal bipole or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's not what the other guy said. So they knew, (laughs) they just knew. And I was like, get your gear ready get ready to move out and they're like oh god so we i had these guys hump to this water tower on the top of a mountain and they were all already on the top of a different mountain and then and then they got to the water tower as soon they i didn't let them put the rucks down they got up and i was like go back to where you just came from and they were like they went back and then they get back i'm waiting for them again and they come walking up and uh i said go back to the water tower and I saw the look on one guy's face, and I said, if you don't want to go, you can just throw your rock in the truck here, and we'll be good. I'll take you back to camp. And the other guy was like, negative, Jocko, we got this, and they moved out. So I was pretty stoked. But yeah, don't lie to the Condre is what I'm saying. No, integrity violations are a big deal. Yeah, yeah, don't lie to the Condre. And anyways, you know, you can't move with a lot of weight, you know? Those guys humped, those guys, I forget, I measured out, I put those guys through a ridiculously punitive road march and they still made their extract which was cool yeah i mean i think in in the higher echelons of leadership there there should be thought given to how do you reduce the load of soldiers because there's an inherent bravado element that comes from being the guy that carried 125 pounds that you don't i the idea we were borderline combat in effect throughout this what's good about carrying 120 pounds is you realize hey this is dumb this is actually yeah. not smart. And if we got into a firefight right now, this rucksack is getting left. And we, if we lose the firefight, or if we have to break contact, I'm never gonna see that thing again with my radio, with my water, with whatever else. So yeah, you should realize that, that this is dumb. And carrying that much weight is not gonna be smart. You're gonna be fairly ineffective. And are there times where you gotta do it? Yes, absolutely. But you gotta really, really think about it. So it's a good lesson from that perspective to minimize the amount of weight that you have to carry. Like, like, I never, I would carry so little food. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you were like this too, because we just, I mean, as a radio man, you had batteries, you had radios, 
and I carried water and like that's it and because I would carry one MRE meal just the main meal just the just that whatever that main thing was mm-hmm. I'd carry one of those per day and that's it that's what I go in the field with because I couldn't carry anything else any extra weight just didn't want it wasn't worth it yeah I mean so we just see though the even in combat there's not enough there's there's planning for everything. Like you have to have everything <laughs> yeah. on you all the time. And you know, speed is security, right? That's one of that's a foundational doctrine thing, right? The faster you can move, the safer that is. There's more security in, inherently. And when you weigh more, you have more stuff weighing you down, you're not gonna move as fast. So, you know, I mean, I think this is just one of those things where in the military, some conversation around that is good because bravado is great. 125 pound training rucks. Great. That's a, that's a lesson in the suck, right? We couldn't fight with that. It's too much. It's too much. So when you get done with the Q course, how do you guys figure out what, when you get orders? We got orders. Yeah. So they just tell you, I mean, so for us, we also have language training and stuff like that. What language did you do? So I actually passed out of German. And, and so that assigned Where did me you to learn ger- German from? Uh, I lived in Germany for about a year. When was that? Uh, in college, I studied abroad there. And then I had a buddy who was a, he was a border a exchange student in America at my high school. And so I lived with him for a summer while I was in college and lived in their house and picked it up. So just passed out of the language portion. And so that, that got me to 10th group, which the classic area of operations is Europe. And then mm-hmm. there's, you know, in the global war on terror, though, you get pulled everywhere. And so ours ended up being Iraq. So that's so that's when you showed up there. What's it like when you get there? Are you just immediately put into an ODA team? You're supposed to be. I hung out on the B team for a little bit because the for whatever reason, sometimes you get not the best spot to get put on. Um, and there's one B team that supports all the A teams in a company. So there's six six ODAs or six A teams and one B team, AKA headquarters support. And so, you know, no matter what, it's, it's like you graduate and you think you're this great Billy badass Green Beret and right. And then you find out that in your company where you're showing up, everyone's a Green Beret and they've actually done stuff as a Green Beret in war and you've done none of that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the floors are never clean enough. The head's never clean enough. Like that's your, that's your job and you're supposed to shut up and learn from the people that are around you. And so how much time did you spend in the B team? Um, probably five months and then we deployed. Yeah, so about five months. And I went to some schools in that process though. They sent me to a school called SOTAC, which is the Army Special Forces equivalent of, of JTAC. So Got Special it. Operation Terminal Attack Controllers course. So learn how to call in in bombs mm-hmm. out in Yuma, Arizona. And so I spent some time and went to a shooting school and did that type of stuff, but didn't didn't join a team until the the spring of 2007 in, in Iraq. And then what was that deployment like? Right, so this was the... You know, this was the surge, right? This was a messy time in Iraq. I know, I know, I don't have to tell you that. And we were down in the south, started out in Basra, which was just, you know, I mean, for, for people out there, right? I mean, Basra was more aligned with Iran through the Shia connection mm-hmm. than it was with the Sunnis that were coming out of Baghdad, right? In, in the Ambar province. I mean, so anytime historically Saddam had 
issues. He'd just send his henchmen down to Basra and show them what's up. And there was just a lot of, it was just a chaotic time. I mean, that IEDs, so roadside bombs, and, and then specifically EFPs, so explosively formed penetrators, right? I mean, yeah, I think it's a explosively formed projectiles. Projectiles, or is it penetrators. It's, it's one of those. You two. get the point, right? It's, it's it's an IED. It's a it's a roadside bomb rather that would cut through anything. So mm-hmm. it would it would cut a hole through a Humvee like you would cut butter with a knife, right? And those were coming out of Iran, and that's that was sort of RAO, and those. The, the missions out of out of Basra were just loaded with I I mean big convoy stuff, lots of IEDs, um, and then I got sent to a team in that was operating in out of Talil Air Force Base, so Nazaria area. And so were you replacing somebody? Did somebody go home? Did somebody get hurt? So they were basically alone as an ODA, and this is you know the early days of this was a pick province, so provincial Iraqi control. Basically what that meant, and you talked a lot about this in extreme ownership, was you couldn't go out without the Iraqis. Mm-hmm. The Iraqis had final say. The governor of, of the province determined the missions that would go out. And so there was this one ODA there, and the regular army that was stationed there was, was not infantry. or they, they just didn't have approvals to go out at all. And we were working with the local police force there. So this by, with, and through mission mm-hmm. that was, that's, that's what SF, that's what special forces is all about, right? Is working with local indigenous forces to achieve a, a greater desired in-state. And so that was our mission. We were working there and there, it was, it was not busy in, until it was, but I got sent there because they didn't have the ability to call in bombs God. if they would go out on a mission. So I had this designator, this school, that I thought it was a horrible fate to get sent to the B team when I first showed up at group at Carson because, you know, you, you can't be Jason Bourne on the B team, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be on the A team, guys. And, and so that is another blow to the ego. But what do you do? You suck it up and you do the best job that you can and you learn how to get – you got to build trust the guys around you. So sometimes that means you, you do a really good job of cleaning, mopping the floors. You do a really good job of staying in shape. You control what you can control and people will eventually take notice of that. And they'll say, Hey, we want to give you more responsibility. So anyway, I'd been sent to this school and had this designator and got sent to a team in, in Nazaria. And that's why I got sent out there. So the guys in Nazaria, you guys are living in like a little tiny fob of some kind. So we had rotated back and we were in a bunker on base. And this was one of those instances where... Was it an Iraqi controlled base or was it an American controlled no, base? No, it was American controlled base. So large, you know, large runway, stuff like that for supplies. And Got I mean, it. C-130s would land there to take your pick. There was a whole... We were just a 30-minute car ride or truck ride, you know, the Hiluxes, mm-hmm. uh, around the whole airfield and stuff. And But that was all, there was a big American presence there. Yes. And then you guys were embedded inside the wire with those guys. Were there Iraqi troops, were there Iraqi police in there too? Or were they in another base so like out So they town? had their own compound in town. And this is one of those things, it was kind of a coming of age story, so they thought, right? You know, okay, this is now a pick province and the team before us had lived with them and amongst them. We don't need you guys anymore. Got it. Go back to your base. Well, we got this. We're, we're good to go. And check. Yeah. And, and it just, it's one of those things where then they wanted cash and, and guns. Right. We need cash and guns in order to provide security in the town. And we were just, you know, paying them and we were giving them training, 
which was just sort of part of the deal and train them on basic tactics and, and all of that stuff. And that was our, you know, we were just doing that. Did you guys do, were they doing raids or anything? Were they trying to capture bad guys? Yeah. So to get to the sort of crux of this, you know, it was, it was quiet until it wasn't. And, you know, when you go to war, you want to be in war. It's one of those things, be careful what you wish, what you wish for, but you want to prove your mettle. I mean, it's just inherent in anybody, especially when you go through the type of training that you go through in that community. You're, you've either been to war and, and seen real combat or you haven't. And, and, you know, to really earn the respect of the guys around you, 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 need to, you need to do that. And so we wanted to do that. I mean, I was new. Some other guys had, had kind of been there, done that, but they were comfortable in this environment. They viewed it as making a difference, getting out and doing stuff in town. So there was, there was this one morning I'd woken up from radio watch, which, you know, you always have someone on radio watch 24-7 around the clock. The team rotates through. And it was – we got an intel – or sorry, the, our local police force called us and said there had been, you know, an, an attack and they tried to assassinate the – they, right, had tried to assassinate the – the, the police chief in town who were training his troops. He was the colonel and were training all his troops. And th- what it turned out to be, you know, and, and oh, by the way, we need you to come and help us, right? Because now they need us, right? Their, their guys are pinned down. A bunch of them got killed. They're, they're in a hospital in the middle of town and, and chaos, just chaos, right? So, you know, you start to activate the intelligence networks that, you know, other guys on our team had been de- developing throughout that time. And, you know, the intel that we got, of course, later was that Muqtad al-Sadr, Muki, had sent down whatever, 1,500 troops to assassinate the local police chief and rain chaos down on that part of town, institute whatever he wanted to do to destabilize the, the region. And so our job was to, to make sure that it would stay stable. I mean, you don't want to give up ground in war, especially not a whole city. Or else you got to go back and retake it, and that's that's really messy. You got to meet violence with violence sooner. So we had to, you know, go through all these approval processes to get out and, and to go out into the town, and you know, with our partner force, and it just it turned into a it, it was a very wild wild west type of. So did you guys push right into the hospital where where they were located? Well, you know, the crazy part was the bureaucracy was still just rearing in full swing. I mean, we had to get the governor to, of the of this province to sign something that would let us go outside. Like we went out to the the or the police compound and then had to come back in order to get this this signature or whatever. And you can imagine the amount of complaining that's going on from <laughs> our guys. Like we're losing momentum here. Yeah. Right? You don't want to let more people come in and take more ground in a city. And so, you know, we eventually got to go back out and we had our, our partner force there. And, you know, we're just working with the, the, the guy who was in charge of the, the police colonel. And it was like we're pulling out a map on, on the hood of a Humvee saying, where are the bad guys? Like, where are they? And then you get in your, your trucks, your gun trucks, and you line up. And, you know, there's – realize the, the stakes here. There's three or four gun trucks and there's, you know, 1,500 bad guys maybe. And that's, that's a not good odds, yeah, right? That's a rough one. Now, that was the intel report. And, of course, you know, the, the headquarters is scrambling to get us any type of support that we needed. 
And, you know, what we needed was obviously air support. And so that was my role on our team was to ensure that we had cover from above from the Air Force. What time of day? Was this during the daytime this was happening? So it started in, in the morning, this kind of spin oh, up. that's right. You and woke then up. We went, yeah. So, well, I kept going. I was on radio watch. So it just sort of extended through. And and uh, so then by the time it really started to, to pick up, by the time we got to the hospital with our Iraqis and, you know, we got our Humvees and they got their pickup trucks and there's, you know, it's... How many Humvees would you guys have in a 12-man team? Uh, I think we had three, maybe four. Because, yeah, three or four. Mm -hmm. And then you'd load Iraqis in the back as So well? they had their own pickup trucks. Really? And so okay. they're, you know, they're riding around in their pickup trucks and they got, you know, Getting a your saw. Hilux on. Yeah, exactly. And they got their saw mounted in the back and, you know, their windows are down and yeah. all that stuff. And, you know, at that time it's, and it still is, but the IEDs were just, that was, I mean, it's the same destabilizing battlefield force as a sniper. It's just such an unknown thing. You can do absolutely everything right and you will just still die. Yep. That's, that's just the reality that you face. And so at some point, you know, in this process, everybody has to say, you know, I'm, I might die. I am absolutely 100% mortal. I've seen that this is, this is very much a contact sport. Other guys playing it have died in this contact sport. And you have to just remove that from your brain. And you have to go do your job. And you have to be smart and calculating about the risks that you're willing to take. Because there's this perception, and I certainly had it, that Green Berets and SEALs and all these types are just out there taking all of these crazy risks to take on these crazy missions. And that's just patently false. There is so much risk mitigation, both through training and planning and just the amount of time that you spend working with each other to learn tactics and techniques and procedures in order to reduce risk to achieve the mission. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot different than what I had expected, and it's a lot more effective. Yeah, and, and to your earlier point, you can mitigate that risk, you can train, you can plan, you can do everything possible but you can't mitigate all the risk and you can just roll down the street and you guys, you can have a vehicle get hit with an IED and everyone in that Humvee can be dead. And that's what can happen. I mean, war is just a metaphor for life, right? War, business, love, and life are all the same thing to me. If, if, you, if you don't risk anything, you will not gain anything. No risk, no reward. If you're not willing to quit some job you hate, if you're not willing to tell the girl that you love that you love her and ask her on a date, Romeo, Right? If you're not willing to go after what you want most in life, you're not going to get it. There's risk involved with that of, of what? Failure, humiliation. None of those is as bad as, as regret. Mm -hmm. And we have regrets when we don't risk anything. So make sure that the mission and the purpose is worth the risk and do everything you can to mitigate the risk and then do everything you have. There's a lot worse things than dying. So you guys made it to the hospital? So we got to the hospital, you know, we recovered. There's a lot of wounded guys that were pinned up there. They're loading them into the back of the back of the pickup trucks and it's it's dark out, you know, and there's you know, I'm I'm scanning cuz my basic only job realize this is my second mission out. I mean, it's first mission out. I mean, there's sort of some pseudo missions, but sure. we didn't do sort of recon by fires like you talked about with you know when you had your your 
guy has first showed up in Ramadi and he had this really complex plan to drive all over town. And you said, Hey, how about you go (laughs) 600 meters out and 600 meters back or whatever? Like we would do that stuff, but we just weren't getting shot up. So this is my first real mission of any kind. Right. And it, it was just, you know, it was one of those things where my only job was to focus on the aircraft. I don't know anything about conducting wartime operations yet. Nothing. This is my first real mission. So I just had to focus on the task at hand. And my job for our team, in order for me to not let our teammates down, was to, to do everything I could to trust in the training that I had and, and make sure that the aircraft was doing everything that, that they could do to support us because they have a great vantage yeah, point up absolutely. there. They can see lots of stuff. And if you've ever had a, you know, hammer was the call sign, the AC-130 gunship. I mean, that is just, I mean, that as a battlefield asset is unrivaled. It's unrivaled. It is unbelievable. <laughs> yes. What that Salute can to do. the AC-130. I mean, God bless the Air Force. Literally, Indeed. I mean, th- it is just a vital support role that they play. I mean, you know, there's this idea of you want this kind of fair fight in life. It's it's more. No, no you don't want no, that at I all. I want an AC-130. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I want. I want the most unfair fight possible. Yes. And so, you know, they don't play by the rules. The enemy does. I mean, the rules are win when you get into combat. I mean, there's a reason. All's fair in love and war, right? All's fair in war. There's no such thing as unfair. So I want I want a gunship. So you guys had an AC-130. We had an AC, we had a huge stack. Nice. I mean, so you're you're basically stacking all sorts of different aircraft at different levels. Did it turn out that there was this many enemy fighters heading your way? Was it fifteen hundred or was it like forty? So we'll never fully know. Um, what we do know is that the the first building we started taking contact as we were moving, and you know the local fighters. Uh, we don't we assumed that they did not think that there was Americans here, right? In in this section of Oops. where they were. Oops is right. Because you know, the Iraqis also had Humvees that we had given them. Yeah. And and we're not here. I mean, like my favorite color is red, white, and blue together in the American flag. That's my all time favorite color. But when we go to war, we're not gonna go fly that proudly on the back of our Humvees and say, Hey, the Americans are here, right? We're gonna wait until you shoot at us from behind and in front. And then that big building where there was lots of barrel fire, that's gonna go away. Right. Or it's going to have it's going to look like Swiss cheese at the end of it. And this was not one of those very complicated wartime situations. I mean, we were there to support our partner force to provide security in this in this part of the the world. And, you know, they had been shot up by outside force and we were there to provide stability when we're getting shot at with them with us. Like that's obviously an enemy trying to kill us and our job is to kill you. And that's that's basically what it was. But it was, you know, a lot of rounds the city where we would go back to the back to his base and put the map back on the, the trunk of the Humvee. And I'd, we'd say, where are the bad guys? Well, it's amazing what kind of intel you can get from from a source when you're going to help them go do something that they need you to do, right? They'll, they won't know anything until something like this happens. And so, you know, my job was to, to basically sit there and call the coordinates up to some of the fast movers, so some of the jets. Mm-hmm. And they would go recon 
that part of town and they would say, nope, no activity there. What's the next coordinate you want me to go check out? And then, you know, they would say, okay, well, go check out this coordinate. They point on the map and I'd send that up and be like, yeah, there's a war party there. And so then we go drive over to that war party and that's, that's how the night went. And there was a lot of loops around the city. And then, you know, you pull back in to base and you got that, a, that chemical dump and you're just sort of, you see out there how guys can go on these missions and then just fall asleep. <laughs> it's not because you're just so physically tired. I mean, it's part of it, maybe. But there's just this huge kind of, okay, we're back on base or we're back wherever and you can just fall asleep so quickly because your body is allowed to relax of sorts. You feel safe again, right? And But we come back and, you know, then it's right back to the priorities of work. You've got to gas up the trucks because you're going back out, by the way, because it's not like one night you just – the multi-headed Hydra is just dead now. <laughs> That's not how it works. But, you know, our headquarters element had sent uh, all sorts of – other A teams and you know the Iraqi commandos were there, and then it was for the week. The next week, it was just a lot of actioning, all sorts of new intel that came in, and and um, yeah, it ended up not being some sort of martial law type mm-hmm. situation that we were fighting. But it's also kind of a doctrine based thing where if you meet violence with violence and speed of action, you can you can take back the high ground high ground or take back the the town itself. And so that's, you know, who, who knows, who knows what would have happened if they would, the, the insurgents would have been more successful and would have taken over the police compound and would have done these various things. Who knows? I mean, then you got to fight to take the the ground back. Yeah. Well, they would have taken over the compound, the vehicles, the weapons, that stuff gets really scary really quick. Yeah. So then that, so then you guys got the city back under control and this was Nazaria, you said, right? This was Nazaria. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then once you had it back under control, did things kind of settle down? They did. What the the interesting part was that this is how we had developed rapport with our partner force, right? So when you do hard things with people and you do them well and you build trust with them, then they want to work with you. And, and that, that cuts across all different lines, right? So whether it's Navy working with Army and Marine Corps or whether it's, you know, you us working with the Iraqis and working with the Australians that were on base at that time as well. And they were, they were great in, in support of, of the mission that we were there as well. And when you do hard things, you, you just develop a bond with people. And that's foundational in the military. And, and so we found that we were much more effective training them. We, we were much more they were much more receptive to the intelligence gathering in their town and just working with us in general. Mm-hmm. And so then we could go on patrols with them or go on missions with them in their town going after the stuff that they wanted to go after, you know? And, and that was effective because we, we were better at the tactics, but they were better – they were better as the first guys in the door. They yeah. they speak the local. They have they know all the local stuff. We we always found it funny, like early on in our deployment to Ramadi, like our breachers would go up to a door, and of course they look at the door. Oh, it's okay. We can't open it. Cool sledgehammer. But sometimes they would just have like these little 
Iraqi mechanisms and like an Iraqi soldier just walk up and like pu- push a switch or whatever, pull a lever and the thing would open up. You're like, oh, okay, cool. And and also, like you just said, they could easily identify if this person was from Ramadi. And if they weren't from Ramadi and they were living in a house there, they're probably a foreign fighter and probably bad. So, but we can't tell the difference any more than someone from Iraq could come here and tell the difference between someone from New Jersey and someone from Boston and someone from Alabama. Like, even if, even if you speak the language, you don't understand those kind of dialects. And so, whereas Iraqi people, the Iraqi soldiers, they'd walk in and be like, oh, this guy's not from here. He's, he's, you know, I always use the example of what you have for breakfast. Because they knew, you know, if you ask what you have for breakfast in South Carolina, you get a different answer than when you say, well, what did you have for breakfast in, in uh, Maine, right? Mm-hmm. You eat different things in, in California. Like out here, it's like, oh, I had a breakfast burrito. If you ask someone from Maine what they had for breakfast, they're not going to say a breakfast burrito. It's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> so, yeah, they can they can identify those things. So did you guys end up doing like just for the rest of deployment, were you guys doing just like targeted raids to go and get rid of bad guys? So ours was kind of the full scale, all encompassing special forces mission. This was not some hugely kinetic driven operation. We didn't have the commandos. That was a a good mission to get. That was not what our team had, right? So the commandos were a a national level Iraqi force and you would assign one. So you guys, was your partner force was a police force? Our partner force was a police force. And over Mm -hmm. there, I mean, what's the difference between soldiers and police? You know, very little. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, for they, sure. They, they carry around machine guns. Yeah. They, you know, it's... The difference is one wears like a blue shirt. Exactly. And the other ones don't. The other ones wear a cami top. Yep. That's kind of the difference. Yep. And so, you know, we were we were training them up. Was your Iraqi police force from um, Nazaria? They were. See, that's another... That, that is another big difference is that the, the local police forces are generally from that local area, which gives them even more of a sense of what's going on, which Mm -hmm. is important. Whereas, you know, in Ramadi, the soldiers, the army soldiers were coming in from, you know, all over the country, coming in from Baghdad, also vastly Shia. And so now you got them coming into, you know, Sunni homes inside Ramadi. So there was a little rift there, whereas the police were from Ramadi. And they were Sunnis. And so they'd immediately almost have a better relationship once we built up that police force. And when I say we, I'm definitely not talking about just us SEALs. In fact, I'm talking about everyone else that did more, much more of that than we did. But so you guys were, were more doing this full spectrum. So you guys are training them. You guys are teaching them how to gather intel. You're teaching them how to do simple things like logistics and all this kind of thing. Well, we're also running our own. And then there's a, a guy on the team who's his job. He's the intelligence sergeant and he's running, you know, assets and, and all that stuff in the town. And so, you know, it's the buy with and through mission. So we're gathering intel in town through random sources, or not random, but various sources. And then what you try to do is you try to train your force up by doing stuff, mm-hmm. right? You don't just- OJT. On the job training, exactly. <laughs> you, you, you don't just gather all your intel and just keep it to yourself. You need to get your force out doing stuff so that they can gain confidence from doing stuff in life. That's how this works. <laughs> And so it just sort of turned into, hey, you know, here's some, here's some intel on this. And then we would go out with them and they're the first in because that's what you want. I mean, you, you sit yeah. and think unless you've got some really high value target where you're going to send in your own very best guys because you, failure is not an option. I mean, bin Laden raid is, uh, of course, a good example. You're going to send in 
the people you're not going to let your partner force go in first. No, you're going to take care in of fact, that. In fact, you're one. not even going to tell your partner force exactly, <laughs> and you're willing to live with those consequences right, right, right. because it's that important. In this case, you know. This was part of the coin strategy, the counterinsurgency, right? You you need these local trained up police forces to, to go out and be able to police their own areas. And it's less sexy in some ways than, hey, I got my beard and I got my guns and we're going to go after bad guys mm-hmm. every single night. But it's a lot more effective. Train the trainer. And so our job is to go out there and, and basically show them how to do this. And this is how you, here's the tactics and, and this is what we do. And so they're the first in and, you know, you get good if you're a cop or you're a soldier. It's kind of the same thing. There's, that's why there's such a bond even in America between cops and soldiers. You, you go into a house, you can smell what that house smells like. And if, if the hair on the back of your neck stands up, it's probably not good. And you can walk into some house and you're like, nope, I can just tell this isn't it. Well, their sense of smell, quote, quote, is, is a lot better than ours. And ours is pretty good at times, but they're able to go into a house. And, you know, by the way, the, the doorways are really narrow. There's 25 people sleeping on the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, half the time they're on the rooftop naturally mm-hmm. because it's cooler because yep. it's a hot country, right? So how are you kind of assessing – You got uh, everyone's got a rooftop. So if you're dealing with aircraft above, who's on the rooftop? It's not like they're up there as snipers all the time. They're no. just on the rooftop. <laughs> they're sleeping. Like, they're sleeping. With their kids. Yeah, with their kids. And, and so it doesn't work to go in to these places with, with your, you know, just guns and do more than you should. And so, you know, part of what, what going through elite style training brings is the confidence to know when not to pull the trigger, when to assume greater risk to your own life, because you should not just go out and pull the trigger. And the more confidence you have in your weapons and in your sense and that's really important. And, and it's a much more stabilizing presence there if you don't kill a bunch of innocent people, right? It, it's, there, there is collateral damage in war. It's just, it, it happens. But you have to do almost everything that you can to minimize that because the second and third order effects of, of dead women and children are, are not good. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the U.S. military goes through incredible lengths to prevent that from happening and you know and, and you're in an environment that this is a good example you know um nazaria at that time this is a good example it's like a transitional phase and i mean when the marine corps pushed into nazaria in 03 it was you know like a legitimate war battle going on and now you fast forward four years it's a different situation it needs to be handled with more discrepancy so so that's yeah, that's that's the way it works out, which is the way it's supposed to work out. That's what counterinsurgency is. The the level of violence uh, gets less and less over time, and hopefully, well, hopefully it does. And then also, hopefully, the the capabilities of the host nation forces get better and better, and eventually they reach a point where we're not needed anymore. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed to happen. You know, <laughs> it's what year is it? We're eighteen years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we made some, you know, we we got Iraq to a fairly stable position. And unfortunately, we completely left in situations like what you just talked about. That's a classic situation where it's like all of a sudden, whoa, we're about to, you know, we've got a real problem here. And when we left, there's no one to call. 
when we're still there, we go, okay, cool. Because what we just said is, hey, if Sodder's troops had come in and taken the police building down and gotten those weapons and gotten those vehicles, and now they're going to start to empower themselves over the people inside that city, that's where that's where you have a real problem. That's kind of what happened with ISIS after we pulled out of Iraq. So, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen, but you have to continue to provide support to that host nation because even once you mitigate the levels of violence as much as you can, you need to make sure that they're gone. And that takes a long time. That could take 10 years, it could take 15 years. We're still in Germany. You know, we were in Japan for a really, really long time. And so these things can take a long time and they shouldn't be, you know, if we would have stayed in Iraq in after 2010, if we would have been there in 2012, 2013, 2014, if we would have just stayed there, I bet those guys, I mean, even Leif who wrote Extreme Ownership with me and he went in 2010 and in all of Al-Ambar province, when he deployed with SEAL Team 1 in 2010, in all of Al-Ambar province for his six-month deployment, there was one friendly casualty and it was from a vehicle rollover. And you compare that to when, when he and I were there in 2006 when there was a casualty or two or three or four or five every single day just in the city of Ramadi. So we were heading in the right direction. I mean, that's a massive switch. Uh, but again, if you, if you assume that, okay, well, it's good enough and now we can just walk away, that might not be the best policy. So you need to think through those things a little bit better than we do. I think some of those decisions were made based on uh, – political decisions based in instead of based on you know everybody that was on the ground that was saying no oh, no we're not quite ready to leave yet need to give a little more time need to need to stay keep our presence here be a backup force you know be able to support the local Iraqi soldiers and police if they need it which they probably won't i mean they already they already said hey we don't need you guys that was 2007 they said hey we don't need you guys living with us anymore that's cool. In Ramadi, they weren't saying that. They wanted us there. And every time we turned over a police station to them, I think almost, I think every single time that we turned over completely a police station to them in 2006, it got overrun. So they weren't ready for that yet. So it's going to take more time. Eventually, in 2007, 2008, they turned over all those. And there was no more uh, coalition forces outside in the city. It was all Iraqis. So we can get there, but a counterinsurgency takes time. And you have to you have to give it time. You're not on. You, you know, it's kind of like kind of like standing on the dang cables at airborne school. This is you're you're gonna have to you're gonna have to stay here until it's time to, until it's done until it's ready. Yeah, it takes some time. Then you start to get into what's the expectation that people back home have for how long this should take and how much does it cost and is it really worth it? And, and you know, I mean, it was just a really it was just a really hard time. You know, my. It's, and it's, it's also hard when you're fighting and my, my family was hugely supportive and yet at that time it was all about the casualty counts, the body counts of American soldiers in Iraq. And you got a lot of moms and you got a lot of moms who can really relate to the moms that are suffering from losing their children. And I mean, what's the, what is the desired in state? Like, what is our actual goal? Is it, is it to turn Iraq into Germany? I mean, if so, good luck. Or is it we don't want places to be able to export violence? I mean, destabil- destabilization? I mean, I, I kind of never fully understood what the actual desired 
in-state was that was realistic. Yeah, well, America did a bad job of stating what that was and clarifying the mission and clarifying the goal. And then they also have to, you, you, you also have to be able to explain that, look, as we dive into a situation, our expectations are going to change. And to your point, um, when you look at an Iraqi army unit, let's say, or Iraqi police unit, if you think that you're going to turn them into a Western military unit or a Western police force, you're not going to because they have a different culture. But what you can do is figure out how an effective police force or how an effective military unit fits inside their culture and then they can can do an excellent job but you have you you have to be malleable i know like for instance um, just the way that they would gather intel and we'd be trying to teach them how to do their intel gathering and it's like actually let them these people know how to talk to their own people they know how to figure this stuff out they know how to document it let them run with it and instead of trying to force our methodology on top of them take advantage of some of the some of the cultural uh, advantages that they have inside their own country let's do that so you you have to be able to adapt as you see a situation unfold but then you have to just like just like as a leader when the priorities change as a leader with your team you have to explain to everybody, hey, okay, I didn't see this coming. This is a little different than I thought it was gonna be, a little different than we thought it was gonna be. Here's what we're trying to make happen now. Okay, everyone says, okay, let's let's move in that direction. So I, I think not only does did America do a bad job of coming out of the gate saying, hey, hey, okay, here's what we're trying to get done right now. It's also, okay, look, didn't really see this coming. Here's what we're going to try and get done. Here's where. Here's the direction we're moving now. This is what we're. This is what we're going to do, and we we did not do a great job of explaining that to the public because man, when I went over in 2006 and it was the same way in 2007, like you're talking about the public opinion had massively, not universally, but a lot of public opinion had turned against the war. For sure, that was the TV. That was you know an entire uh, half of. The country was like, oh, we shouldn't be there. Okay. So how do we explain to people, okay, if we don't want to be there, what do we do to leave? What's the best way to leave? How do we get out of there? How do we get out of there in such a way that it doesn't turn into a problem again? So these are all things from a really grand strategic perspective that hopefully we can learn lessons from. And you know, I'm sure you've seen some of the reports coming out of Afghanistan right now about what what was being said on the ground and what was being told to America. And there's obviously some really stark um, contradictions between those two things. And it's horrible to read about. You know, you can look at the entire Vietnam War and, you know, what the whiz kids were saying about Vietnam and about, hey, all we need to do is kill more of them than they do of us and we'll eventually win. It's like, mm, no, that's not actually true. And, you know, this is w one of the reasons that, you know, I, I've, I've got my uh, kind of personal mentor who I've never met before, but Colonel David Hackworth, who came out at the end of the Vietnam War and said, you know, if we don't change the way we're fighting, we're going to lose. And he got drummed out of the army and no one wanted to hear that. And even, even in the 90s, he was viewed by the army, by some large portions of the army as sort of a traitor. 
strong word, but they, they saw him as sort of a traitor. Well, he was the guy that was telling the truth. He was the guy that was saying, listen, we're not doing this right, and if we keep doing this, we're not gonna be able to win. So these are all things that, yeah, as a, as a nation, leadership, military, and civilian communicating to each other openly and trying to work together to find solutions, trying to work together to adapt your your mission to something that's achievable, to something that we can do, to something that's worthwhile. These are all things that we need to do a better job as as a country for sure. Yeah, so relating back to Vietnam and then to Iraq though, to, to our country's credit, and th- this gets, nobody ever likes to say, hey, America, great job, right? But when you sit and think about how far we as a nation came from Vietnam, where they would spit on soldiers when they came home, to Iraq, where half the country disagreed with our presence there in 2006, 2007, uh, uh, around that time frame. I mean, there was still separation between mm-hmm. the soldiers and Marines, et cetera, and the actual support of the war. And in that, you know, I felt very supported. And, and so as far as I knew, did every everyone that was there with me did as well. Just the American public was not taking its anger out on yep. us. No, America and, has and, definitely learned an incredible that lesson meant from everything. Vietnam in that perspective. Yeah. That meant everything. So, you know, I, I cannot imagine what those soldiers went through in Vietnam when they would come back and it was just, they were spit on. It's Can you it, imagine? It, it's insane to think about. It's insane to think about. I mean, I covered a book on here. Guy came home with a severely wounded arm, you know, and he's goes to college and sure enough, he's, he's, um, you know, getting called a baby killer and all that. And you just think to yourself, wow, that's, that's just unbelievable. And then you had, uh, Jim Sersley come on here who was in Vietnam, was a soldier in Vietnam who, who on, in his 11th month of his deployment to Vietnam, stepped on an IED, lost both of his legs, like basically at the hips almost lost one of his arms and I don't know I don't know if a human being can face adversity let me put it this way if that guy is not a model of how to face adversity I don't know who he is because he came home did nine months of rehab got done left his rehab went to college, got a job, started a roofing company, started doing real estate, and carried on with the rest of his life. I mean, just like the most unbelievable uh, face to adversity, and you know, we've had plenty of other guys on here that have been incredible, um, just the way that they face. I mean, Travis Mills, I don't know if you know who Travis Mills is, but you know, he's a quadruple amputee. Mm-hmm. The, the guy is his, his just unbreakable spirit. I mean, just facing adversity every single day that we can't even fathom. We can't even fathom the the tiny little things in his life that he has to struggle with that he wants to never say a word about, and he does it, and he carries on. and And when you meet him, you think, "Man, I wish I could be as happy as as he is. I wish I could go. I wish I could get along in life as well as he is doing right now." So, a lot of that does come from the fact that America learned its lesson from Vietnam, at least from the perspective that you just gave, which is we treat our service men and women with respect, regardless of what you feel about the war, okay, got it, 
but we treat our servicemen and women with respect, which is a which is a high praise for the way that we are operating America now, for sure. I think it would be great to even take that one step further and just those who serve, those who that's the fabric of what makes America America. Strong communities. We have aligned purpose. Our values are are really clear. You know, as an American, as a as America, what we stand for. And, and yet there's a lot of people that make that happen at the local level. There's teachers, there's fire, there's cops, there's first responders. There's all sorts of people that work in also dangerous jobs out of D.C. And, and it, it's just we need a call to service in, in this culture where there's just a lot of emphasis and value placed on being the best individual we need to reawaken those calls to where it's it's a very noble thing to go and serve your country. Yeah, and I'll tell you right now, I mean, the idea that you're going to get real satisfaction from taking care of yourself, it pales in comparison to the satisfaction that you get when you help other people. No doubt about it. And if people don't understand that, you know, I get I get asked sometimes, you know, well, I don't know what my next next mission is. I don't know what to focus on. I'm like, okay, if you don't know that, cool, go help other people. Go down to a damn soup kitchen and volunteer, and and you'll start to figure something out. And if you don't, cool, you're helping other people. Either way, we're in a better place because of it. It's kind of counterintuitive, though. It is because it is. you it it so. People, and I, I did this as well, we, we struggle to make that connection where we say, I've got to be better. Me, me, me. Now, how do you do that is you find a mission. And if, if you have a purpose and then you have a mission on top of that purpose, that's, you're, you're hitting home runs. Regardless of that, if you just dedicate your life to serving something greater than yourself, it, just, it opens up a way of, of life that leads to a lot of great things with a lot of great people. And I, I just, I've never m- met the person at the end of their days who said, you know, I was just, I, I served too much. <laughs> I, d- I gave too much to other people. I wish I had just done more for me, me, me. <laughs> I, I just haven't met that person. And so, you know, we have the ability and, and the potential to change our lives for the better with just a mindset shift. Yeah. Just to say, dedicate yourself to a, to a greater cause. There's lots of ways to do it. The military is a very uh, romanticized way, in, especially in our society. We, un- we uniquely love our military, and I do too. And there's just, it's not for everyone, and it doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't be. So instead of kind of using this, oh, well, the military only affects 1% of the population, it, like it's some sort of judgment on our entire country, like, that's okay. The military is 1%. That's, that's awesome, right? And if it needed to be more, it would be. But it's 1%. That's okay. There's a lot of ways to serve. And, and that's where the bridges between the Americas that we love that represents the best America and where maybe we come up a little bit short from time to time. If we just dedicate ourselves to serving instead of to, to being angry at the TV news at night, like go turn the TV off and go find something to serve that will benefit your community and our country. Go do that. That would be helpful. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, instead it's let me let me see how many dopamine hits I can get through my brain from the likes that I'm going to get on Facebook if I go publish some anger-ridden ad that's divide-and-conquer <laughs> tactics where you're just a pawn. Yeah. You're a pawn. Someone's, someone's written some article that's, that's going to just divide people, and we share that stuff, and people like it, and we think, wow, I'm, I'm part of a community that's, that's talking about these important things. How about you go stop doing that first, and how about you go do something that actually helps other people? <laughs> And I don't sit here saying, this is all I do with my life. I don't just, you know, go from orphanage to orphanage, right? <laughs> all day long, every day, right? I'm, I'm, I'm human like all of us. And yet, you know, when I have these kind of, this, these times when I think and reflect, usually outside with a ruck on, it's like, am I doing what I can do to make my community, my family, my community, my country stronger? Because I just, I feel like I owe and, and that's the, the bug that I caught through, through service. I, I did not foresee that. I thought it was going to be about me, me, me getting my revenge for what happened over 9-11. And what I got instead was this, this really basic primordial reaction that I just, I owe more. And I can't shake it. And I'm grateful that I can't. It makes me just want to keep doing the things that are rewarding. And that involves other people and building communities and building a bridge between the military and civilian worlds instead of using these divide and conquer tactics. Yeah. So how long is this deployment to Iraq to take us back to Iraq? How long were you over there? That was 2007 and I don't know, seven months. So you guys were on like a seven month rotation. Right. And then we, we came back and that was... Coming back was a weird thing. I mean, we stopped in Shannon Airport in Ireland and drank a bunch of beers in the, <laughs> the airport there because we had rented a civilian aircraft and mm-hmm. it was just a bunch of Green Berets that flew back. So there's sort of a mad dash for the bar when we got there. And, and uh, you know, then we got back and my car was at Fort Carson. My car was the same place where I'd parked it. I disconnected the battery. You know, the battery was, I had to connect the battery back. We're sort of in this parking lot uh, around our compound at 10th group. And it was just sort of like, Oh, I guess I, I went to war and came back. And it, it just was kind of, it was kind of weird. And, you know, there was this other compounding part of my life, which was, you know, I was married to Emily and we had started dating, finally told the girl I loved, the love of my life that I loved her. Oh, and Oh, by the way, I'm going to boot camp. Right. So we had gotten married while I was in the Q course and she had then gone through the, the CIA training pipeline to become a case officer. She graduated from to become a case officer five days before I became a Green Beret. Right. And so she got sent to Africa and then I got sent to Colorado and then to Iraq and, you know, talking over secure lines with your <laughs> wife and uh, while you're at war. And she kind of had some access through her friends to some of our situation, our sit reps, situation reports mm-hmm. from war. And there was it was just kind of it, it was surreal. But um, so I, I also felt just really kind of lonely. I mean, our team was there, but then they went off and they had their families. Their families mm-hmm. greeted them. And that was just kind of a, it was a lonely ride. And oh, by the way, right when I get back, I have my truck and 
driving off base. Thank, thankfully, I waited to do this off base. But you know, in Iraq, when you're in a, a Humvee and you're driving, you, you go down the middle of the road. It's a, it's a tactic because most roadside bombs are on the side of the road, and you don't want to go anyway. You, you just you you just dominate the road. That's how it is. Get out of my way. I've got a bigger truck than you do, and that's what's happening. And so. I, I defaulted to that on the highway right off Fort Carson. And it wasn't some sort of, oh, f- huge flashback or something. It was just kind of, I wasn't was home just, yet. Just habit. I wasn't home yet. And it, it was just all of, these, it, it, all of these weird emotions going through my head. And I had to kind of click my brain and say, hey, I need to slow down, stop, stop flooring it, because that's also how you drive there. Speed of security, go as fast as you can and get to the target, right? And move over into the right lane, take a deep breath, it'll be okay. And, and that's more than the actual fact that that happened was just the weird feeling that that happened. And then, you know, I didn't have a cell phone set up or anything and all that stuff. It wasn't quite as simple as it is now. So I Went back. I was staying with my great aunt and uncle in Colorado Springs. And then I called, you know, had a calling card number to call Emily because she was at working out of the embassy in, in Abidjan, West Africa. And it was just sort of this, I'm back. And it, it, was, it was very anticlimactic just to be on the phone. It's not what you see in the movies where – you know, you land and there's the big parade and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, the, your, your loved one's sprinting for you and, you know, you swoop her off of her feet and do all of these things. It, it was none of that. And then, you know, then the next day, what do you do? You, you, I go, back go back to, to work. Go back to work and inventory all your stuff and make sure that your team room's clean and, and do all of that stuff. And that's, you know, that's the next couple weeks of your life. And so, yeah, so that – and then eventually, obviously, I saw – Emily, I flew over there for for Christmas. That was a <laughs> that was the kind of vacation because she's in war torn West Africa. Mm-hmm. It almost was more comfortable to go visit her. Oh, you felt a little more normal. Well, it, it was like you know. So we talk a lot about PTSD and all that stuff this day and age, and it's become this kind of thing where. Every veteran probably has it, so I shouldn't hire a veteran or there's something wrong with them. I'll, I'll donate money, but I'm going to kind of put them on the leper colony and, and let them struggle with their PTSD and send them a paycheck every once in a while. That's, that's the situation at its worst. Now, there's, there's obviously various levels of, of that, but it's just, you know, when you came back from war and say World War II, you know, you're on a ship with everybody that you went to war with. There's decompression time. Whereas for us, you know, we're, we're getting on a plane, we're, we're having a couple beers in Shannon, we show back up at home, and then we're, we're at home, and this is America, and it is very, very free, right? And, you know, there's not trash everywhere. People don't just, I mean, in Iraq, everyone's got that, what, eight-foot wall, if you've got any, a house and any money, you've got eight-foot wall with concertina or probably uh, barbed wire around the top of it, and when you have trash at your house, what you do is you walk out in your front yard and you throw it over your wall because you don't really care about what happens outside your your little wall. Well, here it's just you know that Colorado air is pretty awesome, and you know you can stop anywhere you want, and there's no roadside bombs, and you know it's like what you saw in, in Hurt Locker. The guy goes in and he's staring at all the cereal, and there's ten million things of cereal. That's not the decision that you're used to making and it feels weird. Just it's, it's, and it happens so fast. And 
and so I remember I, I got off the tarmac. I was on the tarmac in, in Abidjan, and I'd flown over there. You know, they love a good coup in Africa. This, it's always kind of semi-permissive, and it's never perfect, and they could have RPGs and AKs in the street at any time, and you'll be the last to know, right? And so it got there, and it just it smelled tropical, and it smelled just sort of like, like not America, and rolled in, and it's just there's just all this commotion at this African airport, and you know, riding back, getting in her car, you know, gave her a big hug and in the, in the, and a kiss in the airport, and then got in her car and drove home. And there's checkpoints, and you know, there's guys with guns at the checkpoints, and and then you pull into her house, and it's there's two layers to to the compound, and she was not on an American compound per se; it was, it was American housing but not a compound, but it was within a compound with other locals. And there's one layer of quote security where there's a local with a pickup truck. And if you're white, you're, you're fine to go in. I mean, it's, it's just how it is there. It's, and so, you know, so we drove in, they obviously knew her and her car at that point. And then, you know, she's got a second layer of quote security and it's a rent a cop basically. And they've got a, a stick, you know, they're not doing anything with that stick, but it's, it's faux security. And, but it just, it, it felt more normal to me than coming back to America so quickly. And it was just sort of some decompression time. But then, you know, you've got the sort of relationship side and life's hard. And, and so, you know, she's in that job. I mean, the CIA works its people really hard. You have a lot of people, young people, old people, whatever, that serve America, that work really, really hard, and that are true patriots, and they're really committed to our way of life in America. And if, if you go that route, you are – it's a 24-7 job just like Special Forces is. And so she's working 100 hours a week by Wednesday. Our, it's, it, it was not a traditional marriage, you know. And was it all right? Were you guys getting through it? Was separation a good thing? Sometimes, you know, the best thing that can happen between some couples is they're not around each other. Sometimes that's horrible and it doesn't work. Yeah. So we had spent, you know, the first four years of our marriage, we did not live together at all. Zero living together. I was at Fort Bragg. She was in Florida teaching. She was a, a eighth grade Spanish teacher, right? So for the first year of the Q course, I'm driving back to Florida every single weekend that I have off. So if I'm not in the field, I have the weekend off. So drive back. You know, second year, she's going through, she's working out of the Langley and then, you know, out, of, out at the farm. And so kind of doing some of driving north five, six hours every weekend to go see her there. And then, you know, she's in West Africa and I'm in Iraq and then I'm in Colorado and it's... You know, you're, we're, we're, iridiums were the thing back then, you know, these sort of – because it, it wasn't as simple as everyone's got data connections, mm-hmm. just pull up FaceTime or, or Skype or yeah. whatever the case may be. So, you know, it's iridiums and there was, you know, a strand of probably 100 numbers I had to dial to get the access to get – to call her cell phone or her whatever at her uh, – at, at the embassy. And if you go to the well too often, eventually the well runs dry. And so when that Christmas, it was just kind of weird with, with her. It wasn't bad. Like we, she babysat my siblings growing up. She was great friends with my family and my mom and all these things. Like we really were in love. 
And and so we knew each other as friends for almost a decade before we started dating. And it it just was kind of weird when that that Christmas. And so it was kind of like, okay, I was going to get out of the army in October of the next year. And it's like, okay, well, we that became the target, right? Everything's going to be better at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was there for a month and we had fun. It just was kind of weird. Like mm-hmm. life was kind of weird though too, right? I mean, she's in kind of war-torn. I'm going to war, coming back, flying over for some quote vacation, mm-hmm. you know, and we're finally together. And there's just so many balls in the air. It's hard to make sense of what's going on. And so went back and you know, back at base. Well, we ended up forward deploying to Stuttgart to do a backfill for our uh, our commanders and extremist force that was in Stuttgart. So was stationed there for, I want to say four months, something like that. But in that time also went down to a different part of West Africa on a mission to work with the Mauritanian troops out of Nouakchott, except we were in Akjut, which is, you know, a few hours through literally camels and desert in in Mauritania. And, you know, we trained up their commandos and we were out there. And the interesting part is that in much of the world, you know, the U.S. has its diplomats and it has its soldiers. And there's kind of a stark difference between those two. In much of the world, the soldiers are where it's at. You know, the the diplomats, they don't have the real power because they can't they can't take their soldiers and go drive to the middle of the capital and say, hey, I'm in charge now. And so, you know, to go back to follow up on some of the earlier points about, you know, should we be in Iraq or Afghanistan? Or I, I think special forces in some capacity should be everywhere. Special operations and, and people who are serving this purpose of working with other host nations. I mean, that was also the lesson of post 9-11 Afghanistan was you have no presence there. You're going to have to recreate it in time of crisis. And that's very challenging. And so to have some some presence between militaries, between hey, the U.S. military has is working with these locals that are in the military and pick your country, that's important because you you it's constant, not like spy stuff, but you it's just, just you, relationship it's just building relationships. around the world. Yeah. That's it. And Which that's is a really positive thing. Very positive. And so you're also able to, to be there just in case. And so in those kinds of countries, you know, there's a role for – there's definitely a role for the military. Anyway, I was there, and even while I'm on that deployment, you know, M flew up on African Air or whatever from Abidjan to Nouakchott, and my captain gave me the time off to go, you know, hang out with Emily in the capital, Nouakchott, for a couple days while she was in town. Then our whole team went to a soccer game there in some Chinese-built stadium because the Chinese are, are moving into Africa big time. But they, they move in and they set up their own base and they bring their thousand Chinese and they're not doing anything with the locals except extracting mm-hmm. what they can from there. And they're building relationships that way with, with money and with their presence. And they build soccer stadiums and the locals love soccer. And that's kind of what it is. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. But it's just to say that our marriage was kind of, it was atypical. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I went back and what I did not expect. And was part of the reason that you decided that you were going to get out of the army because this 
you know, your marriage, your wife being in the CIA, being on deployment, traveling, and you being in the, doing the same thing in, in the Army was just going to look long-term. This just ain't going to work. We just knew it wasn't going to work long-term. The, the hope at the time was that it would, we would be able to sustain it until it, it sort of ended. Now, what I did not foresee was the idea of how much I loved serving in the Army Special Forces and how great and and what an honor that was and and how impactful those men in that community were and will forever have been on my life. And that became something that I I dreaded leaving that job. And it, it, it sort of just felt like this guillotine that I was facing as I, you know, because it's not like you just show up one day and you say, all right, peace out, guys. Like you have certain dates and you have to re-enlist prior or you do all these things. And, you know, they were really trying to keep guys in because they had invested a lot in us. And, you know, the mission wasn't stopping. And so it, it, everybody around me understood what was going on with my life. My wife's in, in the CIA. She's in West Africa, like, we can't make this work. It's just not possible to, to be married in these kinds of jobs or roles in life. And so everyone was supportive. Um, but at the same time, I felt like I was quitting. And, and so I started to go through that process and eventually obviously did go through that process. And when I, I pulled off base, I had my same green Nissan Xterra I'd had throughout my whole training life in in Fort Bragg and then at Carson and your car is just this very safe place you know when you you can turn the AC on if it's hot if it's cold you're warm it's it's this small notion of privacy you don't have a car in basic training where you have zero privacy Mm -hmm. but when when you have a car you have a little bit of freedom and, you know, if you're able to use your car for whatever reason, before formation or just in general, you have so much that is just creature comforts. And drive, driving off base in Colorado with basically everything I owned in the back of that truck, and I just – I cried on the way off base, and I couldn't believe it because <laughs> this was supposed to be this really – positive step in my life. I was going to go get reunited with the love of my life. And it was going to be, it it was supposed to feel different. And I already just hugely missed my, my team. I missed that way of life. And I'm, I'm, I felt like I was abandoning them and they were going to go back to war and I wanted to go with them. And I was, you know, uniquely, not uniquely, I was well-trained in America's eyes to, to be on the front lines and to continue to serve. And I believe in our mission. And regardless of, you don't always get to choose the destination that you go, and that's fine, right? I believe that when America says it's time to go, I, I want to be the kind of person that says, send me. And so that that was the sacrifice of the individuality that I was very willing to submit to, to the team and to the mission and to our country. And it, it just felt like I was losing all of that. And, and so, you know, eventually your tears dry and you wake up and you, you learn how to be resilient again. But it was just, it was Where did you go? Where what was the plan? Right. So I, I drove back to Florida where my mom was and I was just going to 
put my stuff, my car in storage. And then I was, I was getting on a plane to fly to Africa to go live with Emily. Cause you know, I was now her dependent, mm-hmm. right? So it just was atypical because I had not gone with her out of the gates. I mean, it was, you know, you're supposed to be together. That's kind of how this stuff works. I mean, a community of two, that's a foundational community. Sometimes it's you and your dog. Sometimes it's you and your family, but it's, that's a community. And, and that is very important in not only my life, but our lives. And so, you know, that was the plan. Drop my stuff off, get on a plane and fly over. Well, I did that. And it was just as weird as it was that Christmas before, it was just a lot weirder. Just everything was, it just, nothing felt right. And, you know, I didn't have mission or purpose. And she, you know, she, she was used to operating alone. I mean, she was her and her dog, Java. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, that was her life hundred hours a week by Wednesday, 24 seven all the time. And then I'm showing up almost like dead weight because I got this, I got this sort of chip on my shoulder because I just gave up everything to be with her. And, you know, it, it was just very, it's just not fun. Yeah, just, no, this this sounds like a nightmare because you're showing up there. You just got out of special forces. You just got back from these deployments and you have been turning and burning working 20 hour days for the past however many years. And then you show up and she's in the middle of that exact lifestyle and you're like, I'm going to watch more TV right now. I mean, this yeah, you is just a nightmare. It was horrible. I, there was nothing to do, right? So I even applied for jobs at the embassy. I'm thinking, how do I serve for the next year? Because she was going to be there for the next year. How do I do something here for the next year? And literally, the only job available that I could get was as the janitor of the embassy. <laughs> and... I'm, as, as referenced earlier, I'm not above mopping the floors and cleaning the head. I, I was not ready for that at that time in my life, though. That's just not what, I couldn't go from this, this thinking that, this, this vision that I had for myself yeah. and, and for working with these guys on this team to, I'm, I'm the janitor pushing the mop at the embassy. And oh, by the way, you know, my, my wife's on the top floor in this, you know, really cool job. Yeah. She's saving America. Yeah, on the front lines. <laughs> on the front lines. And I'm yeah. and I'm doing nothing but cleaning the head. And so Netflix. It didn't even exist at that time. So there was Armed Forces Network was all oh, that we got. And wow. you know, so then it's it's me and Java at the house, right? And this is where this was the beginning of my life turning into that bad country song where a guy's got his dog and, you know, his sort of bottle of whiskey and all of his sorrows. And, you know, I ended up only being in, in Africa for about two months. And then I, it was like, we're, this just isn't work. This is too miserable to endure. Mm. And it, it wasn't sort of like, we, we didn't hate each other by any stretch. And oh, by the way, uh, I'll get to the point somewhere down the line where we got divorced and then we eventually got back together and we're together now, right? <laughs> so it's, it's even 10 times messier. But at, at this point, you know, we were just really good friends and we had gone to the well for too long and I just didn't, I wasn't a part of her journey and she wasn't a part of mine and we were trying to make it work and we said, okay, well, we'll skip to the end and that just didn't work. And so I'm, then I'm flying back to, to, uh, solo, you, of when course. When you left, were you like, yeah, this is 
did you leave on, hey, this is probably not going to work? Or did you leave on like, okay, well, I'm going to go figure some stuff out in America. She's going to stay. Were you guys still thinking it was going to stay together at this point? Hope is not a strategy. And we were at best hoping. And it just, it felt like a sledgehammer. So when you rolled out, were you kind of like, yeah, this is probably the end of it? Or do you not want to say this on the air right now? No, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I think it was just Sorry, very, Emily. it was just very confusing. I mean, for me, and this was very mutual, by the way, this was not all me or all her. This was both of us. And it, it was, you know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to bend her lifestyle for me. I mean, was she thinking she was going to stay in the agency forever at this point? Right. So, I mean, this is how, this was the ultimate irony was that, you know, part of the journey that I wanted was to go join Ground Branch, the CIA. That's mm-hmm. where it started. Mike Spann, you know, rest in peace. When, when we honor our heroes, it will inspire further service. And, and that had inspired service in me. And so I didn't know anybody in that process of hiring to get to Ground Branch. I didn't know anybody. And I, I eventually started and made it through and became a Green Beret. And in Emily's training, I met lots of people in Ground Branch. And they became friends of ours. And, and so it was kind of, hey, why don't you just come back and go through the process? I mean, that's how it works, right? If you know someone, mm-hmm. you're more of a trusted person. And especially in, in that place, the, the agency is always looking for things to do with spouses. I mean, if you can, because you're already trusted, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's risks in that job of, of leaks and all that stuff, but you have to trust your spouse. And so it, it felt like, okay, well, I guess I can go do that. And so started reapplying for some of that stuff. But frankly, I mean, I was not in the, I did not have the headspace at that time to, I went from hero to zero real fast. And I'm sleeping on my buddy's slanted floor couch, you know, apartment with a slanted floor on his couch in New York and the Lower East Side for four months. I mean, he's a bartender. Most of the only times I'd leave the place, I'm, I'm going for his shift to, you know, drink free booze at where he was working. I mean, like it was just, it was, I mean, call it what you want, some state of depression or not having mission or purpose in, in my life and feeling like now I don't have no job, no mission, no purpose, no wife, which I was kind of banking on as the foundation for the rest of my life. You expect something to go a certain way and it doesn't. That's harder than just knowing that something's going to be miserable the whole time. And so it was just one of those things where Em and I stayed in touch. We even, you know, took a trip to Morocco together and it was still weird. And then eventually, you know, she came back to. Eventually, you guys need to go to a place like Hawaii. Or, you know, the Bahamas. You guys keep going to random African nations that are in turmoil. Yeah. Might, might want to think through that a little bit. I, so I'm little actually. counseling from uh, Uncle Jocko over here. Well, the other part of this is I'm actually insufferable on a beach with nothing to do. Right? Insufferable. Like, what am I supposed to do? You can surf. I wish I could. <laughs> you can try. <laughs> I can try. You're right. I can be really bad at it until I'm yeah. less bad. I'm at just it. saying places without security checkpoints is what I'm advising. Yeah, got Future it. Future reference. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of you know in touch again and doing this weird long distance thing, and it just it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and it's sort of confused. She comes back to America and has Java, and Java. I'd, formed a really big bond with him while I was in Africa because he was kind of my only friend. Java and Francis. Francis was our 
our housekeeper and sort of like almost like M's chief of staff for the house. She would have parties to, you know, over to the house or she would host people or whatever. And he would just make that train roll. And I became really good friends with him. And he was my best friend in Java. And I was at the, the house all day and for a period of months. And this is anyway, really fast transition to, to doing nothing and having no purpose. So eventually she comes back and it's still really bad. And we're, we're just sort of subjecting ourselves to further misery, right? But you say, you, you hope, oh, this is going to get better. It's going to get better. Well, How's it going to get better, right? I mean, something's got to give. And then eventually you, you just, you can't endure it anymore. And so it's like, you know, she's like, hey, I'm, I'm done. And so went through that. I stalled that because I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, right? I mean, this, everything can work out if given enough time. And, and, and then it almost becomes a competition of who can suffer more, right? And I, I think I can suffer a lot. And I'm willing to kind of be that kind of martyr if, if, left, to, if left in a situation where I want what I want, I'll suffer almost anything. And so eventually you, you just move on. And, you know, I started business school, which I had applied to. And I also had this little hobby for GORUCK that was kind of nothing at that time. But she had actually recommended it the first time I went to Africa because I built her a go bag. I built her a GORUCK. And that was uh, something that then I just was applying what I did in war. You have a go bag. You put it in the trunk of the Humvee in case your vehicle gets disabled and you got to fight, right? So you have bombs and guns and batteries, all that kind of stuff. And it's just extra supplies that you don't want to have on your back all the time. And you might as well have more if the, if the truck's going to carry it around with you so, or for you. So I'd done that for her and made one at her house and made some others for some of the other folks that she was working with at the embassy. And when... I was trying to figure out what to do. We were trying to figure out what I could do. She's like, you should do the GORUCK thing. And that just kind of meant teach people what you know from special forces or build them go bags or whatever, figure it out. Like, here's something, do, do that. And that idea had kind of stayed alive as I came home. And, but I was not in any position to commit to anything as significant as kind of starting a business and, and going full throttle. And then, <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm sleeping on my buddy's couch and I'm kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, I got this go ruck thing and I'm applying to business schools and I'm applying to the CIA, which is just another re-up process. It, nothing happens fast, even when you're a spouse and I'm still technically a spouse. So it's, it's easier. And I know all the right people through, through Emily, which, you know, cause I'm her dependent now. Mm-hmm. Like we joked cause one time when she was at the farm and we went to, uh, <laughs> We went to Bush Gardens in, in Williamsburg and we, we got a discount on the, the entrance because we were active duty. I was active duty military and she was my quote dependent, right? It's a, it's a, a military term. Right, right. Like it's not a, it's not like we're equals. Em and I are very much equals and always have been, but she's my dependent legally. And I was then later her dependent legally. But at Bush Gardens, they gave her a necklace that said hero dependent. <laughs> <laughs> she loved that. Yeah, I mean, we both just sort of <laughs> chuckled about it. It was, 
It was uh Did she turn it over to you like eight months later when you got out? She's like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, it was in a box somewhere like everything else. I still I still have it in my work desk at now at Go Rock and it's uh it's something that makes both of us smile now. But so basically I had these these kind of I'm applying for more stuff, trying to do something. I mean, the idea of filling out an application to go to grad school was just a hugely daunting task. This should take, you know, two or three hours. It was months, indecisiveness, inability to function. And, you know, we talk about military transitions are hard. Like, whoever you are, if you lose all of your support structures, everyone's got a breaking point. I mean, this is one of the lessons of SEER school, survival school. No matter how tough you think you are, you are breakable. And, you know, all of my support structures were gone. And But GORUCK became a hobby. So I had this idea for, okay, well, I guess I'll f- try to figure out how to design a backpack or a rucksack. And thankfully, I actually unbeknownst to me almost, knew a lot about this topic. I just sort of gravitated toward it because I knew a lot about it, even though I didn't have some conversation that said, I really know about rucking and rucksacks. I, I, I was not my own id boosting my own, <laughs> my own you know, sense of self-worth through something that I thought would be a great way to spend time. It was just something to do. And so you know, n- didn't know anything about manufacturing, didn't know anything about anything. But Eventually was like, okay, well, I got, I'll start doing something with this. Put an ad in Craigslist, New York City for a backpack designer. And like, all right, well, let's see what we get. I got kind of some sketches and I got some samples and I want something that's kind of like these. And got a response back from this team in Montana that was basically trolling the internet for work because in 2009, the economy was not in a good place. So you have to put yourself into those kinds of perspectives, you know, you, you like to say good about a lot of stuff, you know, bad stuff happens. Good. Mm -hmm. Well, look, the economy was in a really bad spot. Good. Good. If you're people are looking for work, (laughs) good. If you're trying to do something awesome, because there's a lot more opportunity. Whereas when nobody's looking for work and everything's really expensive and you can't find any deals because the economy is just purring forward, it's just, it's harder. You got you to gotta speed things up faster. So anyway, found this great team out there and basically worked on the rucks and how to do them throughout my first year in business school. And then when did that develop into, or how long was business school? So business school was from 2009 to, to 2011. And so even business school is, I applied to a couple schools And it's like, I don't even know if I want to go to business school. I mean, it's like, it's so weird to think about now. I've got these chapters in my life and I look back at them and it's hard to relate to myself now in some of those chapters. It's like when I I think about deploying to war and all the training that I went through and, and the people that I served with, it feels like I'm reading my own book sometimes, right? My own kind of narrative in my head. I don't wake up like, Rambo every day or anything, you know, I've taken a ton of lessons from that, but I don't, I don't, like, I also can't relate to being just depressed. Like, why don't you just stop being depressed? That's what I would sit and just stop doing this. And the the right answer is move forward any way you can. If you're feeling sorry for yourself, go do something for someone else. And, you know, eventually M came back, we sort of 
separated our ways. We, we fought about, this is in the middle of business school. So I, I went to business school at Georgetown because they gave me a full ride, a scholarship, right? In no small part because of my military service. And that was one of those decisions in life, a lucky break, where they just made the decision for me. Like you, I mean, how do you conceivably turn down a full ride to go to business school at Georgetown? Well, the answer is you don't. You, you, you send thank you letters and you're very grateful. And, you know, also the post 9-11 GI Bill and, you know, transitioning veterans out there, you should use that. It is a great way for you to buy some time and reacclimate yourself to America and gain a skill, some knowledge, some whatever. And it's structure. And so I, I'm grateful to the American taxpayer for, you know, they pay for some housing allowance and some books. And it de-stressed my life a little bit at a time when I needed less stress in my life. And, and so going through business school and, and Em and I had gotten, you know, officially divorced, but she was waiting to go on another assignment. She was going to go somewhere else down south, either Brazil or Mexico or something. And, you know, she had Java and she's living in a, a hotel in D.C. because she's only supposed to be there for a few months. And Java was the fight between the two of us. Is the only, we never fought about money. We, we always loved each other. We were always friends. But Java was the fight because there, there's not two Javas. And so, you know, the, I'll, I'll never forget this moment where we, I, I was staying and I had a condo in not too far from Georgetown, uh, the university in Georgetown. And she was staying at a, at a hotel on P Street. It's a Hotel Palomar because it's dog friendly. And we sort of have dual custody of our dog, Java, right? And it's like, this is what we both got really emotional about. Because he had been with her. He was kind of her dog. But he also was kind of my dog. And he had been on, you know. So just to put some of her work in perspective, you know, she's going as a 110-pound girl out to go on termination meetings with assets, meaning you're telling them you're not going to pay them anymore, which is their only livelihood in life. Thanks for your service and the, the intelligence that you got us, but we don't need you anymore. That, that's, you're threatening someone's livelihood. Be very careful how you are around them. And in her case, there was Java in the back seat with fangs at the ready. Should anyone get elevated or you know escalation of tone, temper, whatever, Java was back there. And he was very much her protector. And they had obviously a very close relationship as well. And so it, it just got so bad about Java. She gave me a, a really big hug. We were standing on the sidewalk uh, off of her hotel, so a little bit closer towards the Georgetown side on, on P Street. And she goes, you need him even more than I do. So here you go. And, and then, you know, then it was Java was mine. And, and, you know, it, I felt guilty, right? And it was just really, I didn't, but I was also but really happy. still took him. I still took him. <laughs> you are absolutely right. I still absolutely took that dog. And that dog is uniquely responsible for my turnaround in life. So, because here's the thing, you need mission, you need purpose, you need community. You and a dog, that's a community of two. And that is a lot, that is a million times better place to be than a community of one, which is not a community at all, right? It's even like the military side of it. If there's two of you, you can cover 360 degrees 
of security. If there's one of you, you can't. You're alone. And that's not a good place to be in life. You need other people. We are hardwired for this, and it is better for us to be around other people. And so now I have Java, and, you know, dogs have to do things like go to the bathroom. And Java needed exercise. And he would let me know in no uncertain terms that he needed to go out and that he wanted to go to the creek and that he wanted to then go a little bit further down the down the path. And, you know, I just I poured all of my grief into that dog and I felt so much better for it. And, and then, you know, you start you take one step and you can take many. And, and so that was just the start of kind of slowly and it doesn't happen like that. It's like, when did you become a great leader? I mean, if people ask you that, you're. Yeah. it's like it, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You've got to just take one step forward and see where that path goes. And when, when you're at a, a low spot in life, I mean, get a dog, work hard, stuff like that. I mean, Java got me out and was just my absolute rock in life for the next several years. And he passed away in 2013, got sick and passed away of something. We don't know what, but, um, anyway, by that, by that point I was doing much, much better and used the time in business school to kind of incubate go rock and met a lot of people there that, that hugely impacted the, the direction that go rock would take. So how did go rock get to get from this idea of teaching people about a go bag to what it is right now? Yeah. So it started out with one rucksack. GR1. And, you know, there's an, I did a napkin sketch of it and eventually figured out how to get that through the process of you get something R&D'd and then you find a factory that will build it, which is, by the way, a completely different process. And then there are things like order minimums and you have to spend all, I spent every dollar I had to get any inventory at all. And the thing is, is at that point, that was May of 2010 was when the the first rucks were for sale. And I, I thought, man, we've been working on this officially since, you know, the original idea was late 2007. Officially started the company in February of 2008. It's just a way to, while I was in, while I was still at Green Bray, as just a way to catalog costs. Like, oh, there's, a, I got to take a trip here. I got to pay this person to design these things. I guess it's a company, right? I, I never had a lemonade stand as a kid, okay? I was not some eager entrepreneur, like this is what I have to do in my life. I just kind of backed into this and then I have a company and then, you know, it starts to kick in. I I hate to lose. I hate losing, hate it. Right. And so I don't want to lose. I don't want to quit on this, right? I've already quit on a marriage. That's how it felt. I already quit on a team, already quit on what I held most sacred in life. And that's what it felt like. And so I don't want to quit on this. So I took all of my kind of perception of failure and I had my dog by my side and I just refused to quit at this. And so in May of 2010, the rucks came out and I thought, oh, this is awesome. I spent a lot of time developing this. Everyone's going to want one yeah. of these. How are you going to keep inventory up when this demand comes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just going to fly off the shelves like magic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't believe I thought of this. I'm so brilliant. Yo, yo, the name is great. The Every pixel on our one-page website is perfect. Yeah. And, you know, it's silence was the world's answer. 
it just was absolute silence and nobody bought anything. And I was like, man, this is terrible. So I had this great, and by great, I mean horrible idea to drive around the country to 48 states, by the way, with my dog, Java, and go meet anybody I could meet that would possibly be interested in buying a rucksack. I felt like Willie Loman, except I wasn't selling <laughs> shoes in Death of a Salesman. I'm like selling rucksacks out of the back of my trunk. Yeah, which actually everyone needs shoes. <laughs> everyone doesn't necessarily need a rucksack, so you're already starting in a rough spot. <laughs> so did that. Drove to 48 states and went to sort of small retail shops and got the Heisman from everybody, right? Like, no, you know? Arm out front, this is too expensive. You know, the retail price was 295 bucks for a, for a rucksack. Mm-hmm. And they're all, they were all made in America, and they're, it's just really expensive. When I first saw the cost side of what it was going to cost, like, this is insanity. And, and basically it was. So Luckily, you knew that everyone would want these. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the question became, uh, what I did not know how to do was – anything related to business doctrine. I don't know anything about online advertising. I don't know anything about wholesale. I don't know anything about ads. I don't know anything. But what I did know how to do was to to work with this these designers. And they, they gave me a heck of an education in just the manufacturing world. And I'm just grateful that I found them. Just a huge education about all the trade-offs in product and, you know, what you can and can't do. And that became my foundation. They became teachers to me for two years as we were developing this and eventually got a great piece of gear. And that wasn't enough though. And so went back to the begin, back to the basics and said, what, what do I know how to do? Cause I don't, I didn't want to slave over a computer and figure out Facebook ads. I just didn't. And I, I should have probably, except maybe I shouldn't have. Cause what I did know how to do was to, to teach others and how to, how to train others and how to build teams. And I learned that from the guys who had taught me that in special forces and then working with them by, with, and through partner forces in Iraq and in Africa. And so came up with something called the Go Ruck Challenge, which was a rucking-based event. Imagine that, because that's all my training was, and now we have rucksacks. And anybody could sign up, and it would be led by a special forces guy. And at that time, it was just me. (laughs) And so, you know, it was sort of details not forthcoming, and you show up at 1 in the morning, and this could go a very long time. There's no published route. There's no published distance. It's just us and you're going to do what is is you're going to do what's told of you lunge around the building till I get tired style <laughs> right and yet the other part of it was I didn't want it to be like boot camp that was the one thing out of the gates was yelling and screaming has its place but in boot camp and cuz you have to get people's attention and you have to tear them down you just don't have that time when people are actually giving you their time and paying you to be there So, you know, it was, we'd weigh the rucksacks down and they would put bricks in the rucks and then we would do PT and a guided tour of the city and they would face a lot of adversity. And I would just apply the lessons that I'd learned in my training to building a a team out of this small crew. And then that started to expand. Yeah, so what turned out to happen is that those people did the work for me. 
they went on Facebook and Google and used their networks and told people about GoRock. And, oh, yeah, there's gear that we manufacture. Like at, at a foundational level, we design and manufacture all of our own gear. And it's meant to withstand this really difficult and challenging stuff. And it's really good at carrying weight. All the things that I would have wanted out of an assault pack, that's kind of what we did with this. We just sort of streamlined it so it didn't look like a military assault pack, right? And and so- What year was that first uh, Go Ruck challenge? That was September 25th of 2010. Okay. So it happened pretty fast. When did the next one happen? So the next one happened the next month. And it was basically in, it was in DC. After the first one, were you like, okay, this might be a, a path right I, here. I, I was in the parking lot of like right along the, the ocean, just west of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. They have, you know, parking for beach access. And that was mm-hmm. a start and end point. And it was, I don't know, 12 or 15 people were in that first class. And where'd you advertise it? Craigslist or? So we had a partnership with a, a, an event series called Tough Mudder. Oh, yeah. And and so we were actually meant to be the prequel to the Tough Mudder that was going to happen in uh, Lake Tahoe in that region, like a little fight club, if you mm-hmm. will, that would then show up and do the Tough Mudder together as a team there. And it was something for them to talk about, and it was obviously good for us. So they had they had hit a home run on their their first event, which was in in uh, May of yeah, it was May of 2010 because that's we went to that as well got together a bunch of my special forces buddies and put bricks in our rucks that we had and went and did Tough Mudder together. And it was sort of something to talk about. And of course, nobody bought anything. We had inventory. That's where I thought everyone's going to buy everything. Nobody bought anything. Like one person named Neil bought one rucksack at half off, right? And so I almost got my money back or so for, for the rock. And it was just, you know, so anyway, we had kind of attached ourselves to a bigger organization and they drew, we got a little bit of their press and so people showed up. And, but that first one, I actually had to really hustle to get people out there because it was just a proof of concept. And it was crazy. I mean, this idea of unknown distance, unknown time, unpublished route, and some special forces guy is going to put you through special forces style training. That was the marketing. And so that will speak to a certain kind of person. The mm-hmm. question becomes, how do you reach them? And, you know, Tough Mudder certainly helped in, in that. And then, you know, you get one person that signs up and they want to bring a buddy. And that's kind of how that worked. And, and so did the first one and, and, you know, we went over Golden Gate Bridge and back and, you know, they rolled around in the sand and did, you know, all that Navy SEAL style stuff in the ocean that I was less familiar with ocean PT. So, you know, there were a couple... You know, hey, I, I had to learn how to make sure they locked arms when the, <laughs> the surf was coming, right? Like lock elbows and, and everybody make an unbreakable chain. Well, that became sort of the, the teamwork part of it. And when we were done, we hung out in that parking lot and drank beer together for hours. And everyone was just sort of had this huge smile on their face. And, you know, it brought some peanut butter and jellies and people were eating that and drinking beer and everyone was smiling. And we were talking about how bad it sucked. You know, and it was just awesome. And it was like, this is how we're going to build GORUCK. Th- these are our people. You know, the people that, that want to push a little harder, a little tougher, demand a little more, and want to be around, just have that sense of camaraderie. Just push a little harder. Find something hard and do it because it's hard. It's very counterculture these days, right? Everything is sold on being easy. And, 
You know, we build gear that's designed for the toughest situations on planet Earth, like war. And we put on events that are designed to challenge people and push them harder. And, and now we have a lot of different events. But at that time, that was it. And it sort of made the, the rounds. And the people that did it, they told the people that they thought, I know. Because when you're done, you say, I know just the person that needs to do this, right? <laughs> And so, you know, the next one was, again, a really small class, like six people in D.C., four of whom were personal friends of mine. But it was about— You roped in two randoms, though. Two randoms, <laughs> right? I mean, I probably—you know, and at that time, the, the price of the event was half the price of the rucksack, and you got to keep the rucksack. So I'm making no money on any of this. And I'm spending to travel and, and yeah. go places. But you have to bet on yourself sometimes. And you have to bet on something that you believe in. And I felt it. I felt it in my gut that it felt really good to give back to people, to show them not only what this bridge between the military and civilian worlds look like, but, but just as individuals, how to push a little further in life in this small microcosm of special forces training. And you know, that was very just rewarding. So come what may, this is what I want to do. I don't, I don't want to sit in front of a computer and figure out how to do AdWords. I, I, I don't. That's not, I, I want to be out and use, and I'm going to lose that fight. I'm going to lose because there's people who they just grew up on that stuff and they've been doing it for forever. And that's sort of fighting a war on their terms, a business war. Now, I wanted to fight this on my terms. And my terms were, I have this background and I can apply what I know and I can provide real value to people. And if you're starting a business, think about that first. Provide real value, get real feedback from people and, and follow that, do more of that. And good things will happen. And so there were some startup costs to this though. You know, traveling around and, you know, it's... It, <laughs> The events were 12 and then 14 hours and, you know, they were really, really challenging. And every single time it was like a little fight club that happened. And there was just a very passionate base that became the foundation for this GORUCK community. And if that would not have happened, I would have gone back and figured out how to serve America in some other capacity, you know, ground branch or mm -hmm. go back into the military or whatever. I mean, that's what I wanted to do, but I just got that sense of satisfaction from, from this. So that you had your first event in 2010. How many events are planned roughly for 2020, 10 years on? So we have about a thousand events a year now. And they're, they're, they're led by current and former special operations guys. And so that means just, I mean, we have SEALs, Green Berets, Delta guys. We have, you know, uh, PJs from the, the Air Force. We have all, you know, we have Force Reconnaissance Marines. And what's important is empowering veterans to give back on the home front. Because all of us are united in this belief that we owe. We owe more. We owe... You think back to the friends that you lost. And when I say that, I know for a fact in your head, you're thinking about them right now. And you think that they died in service to our nation for values that we hold dear. And what they wanted to do was to continue doing that for the rest of their lives. That's what they wanted to do. And so we honor their memory 
by continuing that mission as, as us. And we, we get huge inspiration by drawing upon the fact that we owe. We, we just owe them. And, and not just for their memory, but, but for our way of life and the generations that will follow. Because if we don't honor their memory, then we'll forget. And, and not this doesn't mean just write it down and forget about it. It means you have to live it and you have to talk about it and you have to share what you've learned and you have to get out there with other people that maybe have not been exposed to that. And you have to, you have to show them what that, why that matters and why service is so important. And for me, that, the inspiration is the guys that I served with and that, that way of life that they taught me. And so everyone in our community has that. We have that deep inside of ourselves. And this is just an opportunity for those in our community to build a bridge between the military and the civilian worlds and to get that feeling of making a difference on, on the home front. And so GORUCK became this bridge for me. I was part of the building of this bridge along with the people who showed up for these events. We were building it together along with my dog. And every, every event, I just my, the well that was empty in my life it just filled up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more because I, I gave back what I knew. And people said thank you. If someone says thank you, take them at their word. You did something good. Do more of that. It's, this is, doesn't have to be that, that hard, right? And, and so that, that is something that we're just passionate about. We, we put veterans as the face of our organization at all of these events all over the country and the world. And it's just, it's, there's just a little bit of magic that happens. And we're all, we're all strengthening and reinforcing that bridge. And it's a, it's a very different thing than, than getting angry and talking about how different we are. I, I just, I don't see it. I see, we, we literally don't care if you are young, old, black, white, male, female, gay, straight, military, civilian, pink, purple, polka dotted, striped, whatever, right? If you want to show up and be a part of this team and do the work, we want you on our team. That, it's just that simple. And there's something very liberating about that. It's apolitical. It's, it's pure, and, and that's what the military in its best form represents. There's just absolute purity. It's, it's to be a part of that is just, it's great. And so to be able to lead that for others is just hugely rewarding. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I got another question for you. Lessons learned wise. How did you manage to get your wife back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, so <laughs> what was it? So I'm in You business. took her dog. I took her dog. She, <laughs> You're just batting I, like real low right now. Man. I was so I was so you got desperate. no job. You're going to school. <laughs> You're I mean, you took her dog. All right. How did you manage to dig yourself out of that hole? So I was so desperate, to she, Emily. she gave me her dog, right? Um, so she moved down to, uh, she moved down to South America, got remarried, had a, had a daughter, Natalie, who, who lives with us now, still visits her father. Her father's in the, the military in Brazil, so he's a Brazilian officer. 
And, um, you know, I mean, that's just sort of what happened at that time. The, the chaos train continued <laughs> a little bit for, for both of us. And it just, it was, it wasn't just easy. There was just, it just wasn't easy. And, you know, I'm driving around with a dog to 48 states trying to start a backpack business. Good luck, by the way, <laughs> right? Against all odds, you know, and, and, you know, she fell in love, got remarried and had Natalie, who's just the world's greatest big sister now because we have two other boys um, or two boys, I should say, Jack and Ryan. Um, but so how did we get back together? You know, we just kind of stayed in touch. We were always friends and it wasn't some kind of what happens when you make decisions in the moment is that when they're when they're big decisions and they're forks in the road and you you go left or you go right or one of you goes left and one of you goes right i mean eventually you will get perspective on your own decisions and you have to come to terms with that and the thing that i really try to avoid in life at all costs are regrets. And I just, I, I don't, I think about will I regret this with either my time or my effort or energy, whatever, before, and this is fast forwarding to just sort of business or life or whatever decisions. But at that time, you know, I don't know. I really don't know what it was. I remember she wanted to see Java because she was back in America one time. So uh, so we met and I saw her and we had Java and it's like we're crying again. I mean, it's just it, the the love never really dies. I mean, you you, you fall in love with someone. I, I hear these stories, you know, you love someone and then you hate them because whatever. I, I, I'm That's not my story, right? My story is we were really good friends for a, a really long time and – we hoped that our strategy of having uh, this fairy tale ending skip to the end with these chaotic, crazy lives, which then the plan was I was going to join the agency where we were going to be a tandem couple in the agency. And that didn't happen, of course, right? Um, but we stayed in touch, saw Java. And then at some point, she was, she sent me a handwritten letter, which is a really, you know, it's one of those things that if you want to get someone's attention in a very busy world, send them something that you've actually written by hand. It, it implies a, a degree of time and thoughtfulness and all these things. And so we traded a couple notes. It's not like this is just radio silence, but she sent me a, a note and, you know, it was just like, I'd, I'm, I'm moving back to America and I would love to see you. There's probably more to it. I don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was complicated, but you know, I mean, and then we saw each other and it just kind of clicked again. Like the love came back and, and the love never left, but it was, I don't know, Jocko, it was just magic. <laughs> it was just magic. And it's just one of those things where I, the surprising thing, I guess, was that you know, she had gotten remarried and she got divorced, right? And then we got back together and, you know, I had not moved on. I mean, I had dated other people and, and it, I wasn't really ready to, to really move on. I had not gotten over her by any stretch. And so that kind of held me back in lots of other things, especially the, the love department of life. Um, 
But I also was very skeptical. I, I didn't really want to just throw myself back into what our relationship was in 2008 and 2009. And so it, it, it took time after that. We, it's, it was actually, you know, work. We had to talk about stuff and get stuff out there. Imagine that. Like if you're going to get remarried to your ex-wife, you, you've got some work to do, right? And, and uh, you know, now we have two boys and she works at Go Ruck as well. And it's, it's not some perfect life that everyone thinks that everyone else has because nothing is perfect. But we're really happy. Awesome. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is the, uh, I know you, you and I kind of linked up to begin with through Ryan Mannion and the, uh, and the Travis Mannion Foundation. What's, uh, how are you tied into supporting that unbelievable cause um, in, in memory of, of Travis? Yeah, so that was one of those situations. It was one of the easiest some things in life are really hard and you've got to do them. Some things that are hard in life you should not do because there's probably other things that you could spend more time on. This was one of those situations where they do at their core the very same thing in so many ways, right? They empower veterans to give back, right? They, they operate from this assumption of we, we owe. We owe and let's be servant leaders and let's get out into the community. Let's be more physically active. Let's build communities. Let's show the next generation what our values are. And let's, uh, let's allow them and afford them the opportunity to become servant leaders themselves. And so our community basically linked us up. I mean, there was a, a Heather who works at Travis Manning Foundation was doing Go Ruck events and TMF or Travis Manning Foundation was, was putting on these heroes runs over 9-11 every year to get people and bring them together in, in honor of the, the, their cause, right? And, and so it, it just kind of happened. I mean, the, the communities, they're doing service projects. We have communities. The communities just sort of aligned. And then we partnered officially on these 9-11 heroes runs and turned them into rucks or runs or walks, whatever. But it's about bringing people together and, you know, raising awareness and spreading goodwill around the, uh, the, the veteran space. And so, you know, we had been working together as partners on this stuff and service stuff at the community level, ground up, long before I'd ever met Ryan. So, you know, since then, I've gotten to spend a, a lot of time with her and we, we just rocked the Marine Corps Marathon together, which was awesome. awesome. Yeah, it was great. You know, you, you spend some time with someone doing something hard, you get to know them, and it's great. You develop a bond, and, and that's – you can't get it if you don't do something hard t- together. So that was great, and we just share a lot of the same values. And so, you know, they're part of our vessel for fundraising and for getting people out and getting people active and aligning ar- around a cause. And one of the things that I love – about her her story and the story of the Travis Mania Foundation is that she goes, Travis would hate the fact that we've called this organization <laughs> the Travis Manning Foundation because, you know, he, he, she, she's like, it's not about me, right? That's the sort of way of life that you live. And you really do live it when you, when you serve in these kinds of communities in, in the military. And, and so there are other... <laughs> 
Their, their other thing that they say, these last five words that he said before his, or these five words he said before he deployed on his last deployment to Iraq was, if not me, then who? And, you know, the way he said it, it wasn't really a question. It was just, uh, I'm going to go because this is what I'm trained to do. And if not me, then they're going to send someone else. That's why I'm going. Like, this is, this is my mission. America's sending me. And these are the values I hold dear. I'm going to go forth and, and go. And so my, I've kind of, the idea that now his kind of cross to bear, if you will, sitting up, talking to the big guy upstairs is, if not me, then who? It might as well be my name on the organization to represent this sort of veteran space and, and trying to get more of us out there to raise awareness and, and to really empower the next generation as well. And so we're just so aligned that it's such an easy, rewarding partnership for us. Yeah, awesome. No, it's uh, just uh, so awesome to have Ryan on this podcast and, and hear everything about the foundation, what they're doing. I did like a, a, a video that they present to schools for kids, you know, talking about discipline and integrity and leadership. And so they're just getting the word out there. And, and I appreciate that you guys are helping spread that word as well. So that's awesome. Um, well, we're looking at a little over three hours right now. <laughs> uh, you, you made this really easy. The website is goruck.com. Exactly. The Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, the YouTube channel, it's all at goruck. And people can find you. People can participate in these thousand events you got coming up. What do they do? Just go on. Where, where do you sign up? So it's also on on the website. There's events that are that are on there. I mean, there's you'll if you go to the site, you'll see a lot of gear and stuff as well. Like that's that's the other part of what we do. It's kind of complicated like that, right? It's really like a fitness thing with backpacks, though, right? We manufacture gear. You've got this rucksack or this backpack. You can do a lot with it, and so um, yeah, there's a lot of events, and nobody wanted the name Go Ruck except for us. And hmm. so all of our social media stuff is, is Go Ruck. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that, that made <laughs> except, it really easy. Except there was this Hungarian photographer early on. Whose name was like? Goruk. Goruk. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he had the Twitter handle, and I pestered him for forever. And eventually he canceled his account, and then that triggered all these other things. Eventually we claimed it. We're not hugely on the Twitter space, but it's everything's Go Ruck. That, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, Echo, you got anything? Yeah, what what kind of dog is Java? Java is a so Java was a chocolate lab. He he passed away in 2013. It was one of those situations where, oh man, we had this really big event. We'd done an obstacle course race out in in uh, Virginia, like a confidence course. I mean, wood trees with nets and stuff, and you know, balance walks and all this stuff and. It was our first venture into that as a way to get people out there. We ended up never doing that again because it was just too labor intensive. But Java got really sick right before that and spent a lot of time. And I slept on the floor at, at, the, at the, the vet's office in Northern Virginia for like two weeks. Became really good friends with Heather, who was the veterinarian there. Still a really close personal friend of mine. Um, but he... he it was basically diagnosis by exclusion. They, it just got some autoimmune disease like lupus, and I just watched him wither away to nothing. And so th that's the sad part of the story. It comes to all of us. You just have to kind of <laughs> deal with it. 
And and then we got Monster. So if you go to our, our site or you see pictures now, most of them are of Monster. He's also a an English chocolate lab. So he's got this kind of block head. And those two dogs, they look kind of similar. But Monster is literally the nicest dog ever. I mean, Java was kind of had those fangs at the ready and the great protector. Mm-hmm. And Monster just, he'll roll over on his back <laughs> with, you know, all four paws in the air. And just no, no predator to that dog exists mm-hmm. whatsoever. And... You know, life's a funny place like that sometimes. They're they're both great. They're just complete opposite. <laughs> right on. Anything else, Echo? No, man. That's it. Good to meet you. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, this man. has been this has been fun. Yeah, man. Any anything else? Any closing thoughts? Anything we missed, uh, at least on this round? You tell me. You got any big advice for me? You, I'm sure you've dug into Go Rock and you've seen sort of our, our stuff with a fresh set of eyes. You you do a lot of business consulting. You solve a lot of problems. You've seen a lot of leaders along the, the way. I mean, what do you see of, of what we're doing and what are we doing well and what, what could we be doing better? I think what you're doing well and what, I th- what I'm glad that you already figured out is like you're focused on helping people out and you're exposing them to, I don't know if I want to call it a form of exercise because it's really a lot more than that, you know, going out on a, on a ruck hump. Like I said, I've talked about it before. It had a big impact on my life. It has a big impact on the way I think about things in general. So I think the fact that you're taking something that helped you and is opening the doors to a lot of people, I, I don't think there's a better business plan than that, man. So Keep getting after it is what I always say. <laughs> All right, we'll keep getting after it then. Thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks for what you're doing there. Thanks for helping out the TMF, the Travis Travis Mannion Foundation. That's awesome. Um, of course, thanks for your service, man. Appreciate it. Likewise, Jocko. Thanks for what you're doing. All right, brother. We'll talk to you later. And with that, Jason has left the building. And while, while Jason has left the building, I'm going to be entering some buildings around America speaking to people. Yes, going on tour. <laughs> sure. All right, live gigs if you want to come. January 6th, Washington, D.C. January 11th, Austin. Already sold out. Sorry. January 16th, New York. January 20th, L.A. January 27th, and then... January 27th, Seattle, and January 28th, San Francisco. So uh, looking at the maps of the uh, assorted event venues, they are, one is sold out, like I said, Austin, the other ones are in the process of selling out. So if you want to come, jump on there. Go to JockoLive.com and get yourself some tickets to come hang out. I'm going to talk. Echo's going to be there. Some of them, I think. That's what we're planning. Yeah, we're sorting that out. We'll see. Maybe all of them. Maybe some of them. Not none of them. Not none of them, yeah. For people that like Echo, hopefully it's one of the ones that you're going to. For those people that don't like Echo, there are people out there like that. I believe so, yes. Yeah. If you don't like Echo, well, you're all right. You can still come. <laughs> uh, and, all right, so we talked a lot about rucking, which we've talked about before. Certainly a good way to make yourself better. Not the only way. There are some other ways to make yourself better. There's ways to 
provide yourself support while you're actually supporting what we're doing here, kind yep. of this whole thing. Yep, it's true. Echo Charles, hey, let you know, us know how. Rucking, like you know when I think about rucking is in the airport? To me, when I think of rucking and you, I think you have no idea what this is. Yes, I do, because <laughs> uh, my camera bag is pretty heavy, and then my computer bag mm-hmm. is pretty heavy. It's heavier than a regular computer bag. Well, okay. my computer's kind of heavy, because it's big. Even though it only has four terabyte drive? Yes. Yeah. Weak. Anyway, <laughs> it's still a heavy computer is what I'm saying. So when you carry the camera bag and the computer bag, when you travel, you, you walk from terminal to terminal, going in, uh, you know, to all these different gates. This is it. You've you basically been through the Special no. Forces Q course <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Pretty, pretty much is what I'm saying. That's what I'm hearing. And, hey, man, I don't know how a real ruck feels. I don't. That's what I was thinking. Like, you have no idea what we're talking about. I we have might an as well, idea. We might as well be talking about... You know, walking around on Mars in low gravity or whatever gravity they have on Mars. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, walking around on the moon no, with low no, gravity where you're I like, disagree. I can imagine what it's like, but I have no idea. I disagree because when I walk around with that, it's like a little like workout. So then so what you I kind, do is. Okay, so I, I was right. I sh- you kind of know I what the deal shift is. my mind like where it's like, hey, this isn't really a workout. It's a workout, but mm-hmm. it's not the workout. I'm Echo just Charles to get. Special Forces two-course <laughs> dominator via... Uh, carry on luggage carry on luggage yes sir and it's very true because i'm just trying to get from point a to point b are you going to start a company called go luggage (laughs) (laughs) where you go carry luggage around an airport for a workout anyway just wondering i know exactly what's going on but it's kind of like here look you just say uh, you know exactly what's going on well maybe not exactly but it's it's like you know like that you could you could isolate that as a work because like when he's talking oh yes actually i do know what's going on because when he explained how it feels to take off like the rucksack when you're done i was like bro you're talking about me you're talking about me when you get in your plane you wear a you wear a, a backpack yes sir for so let's call it seven minutes as you get through there. <laughs> yeah. And then you yeah. finally get, after that treacherous journey, yes. you get to your first class seat on the airplane. You get to unload that burden. Oh, yeah. You feel and all the blood to, go back to And then the girl just, comes over and says, would you like a champagne, no, sir? No, man. I'm too busy rocking. So you know, that's getting, basically getting right. I think, I think that's the SFQ course. It's the same thing. I it's think that's ranger small. school you just completed. Anyway, I'm doing jujitsu. Okay, I don't know about good. you. Change the you subject. Know? Good well, call. Uh, so <laughs> and sometimes I'll do it with a rucksack on. You do jujitsu with a rucksack on. If you had a rucksack on, did jujitsu? If you if the rucksack was like streamlined, mm-hmm. I don't know like how. But I mean, they get there's varying levels of bulk, right? Mm-hmm. Which I mean, there's levels, right? Yep. But if you had a streamlined rucksack, mm-hmm. jujitsu might it might benefit you because you get used jiu-jitsu. to the weight. You get used to the weight, sure, but no, no, no. As far as like performance goes, because you'd be heavier on them to go. Uh, like they couldn't really stay on your back. You see what I'm saying? True. Kind of unrealistic, but nonetheless, yeah. I do jujitsu, and you know what? I don't wear a rucksack most of the time. I wear a gi <laughs> some of the time, half the time. I don't Where know. do you get your gi from? Origin. So you go to originmain.com. And what is important gi. about Origin? Why? Well, depends on who you are, but in my opinion, what's significant and significantly important is that they're made in America. Okay, made in America sounds cool. I appreciate it, but what if we want high quality? 
yes, same deal. So I was going to say the second most significant <laughs> thing is the Marine America, the, the high quality. That's the first most significant thing. You see okay. what I'm saying? That's what I was going to say. So originmain.com, get your gi, get your rash guards, get your T-shirts. And by the way, since we can't walk around America wearing gi pants, yeah. you can get a pair of origin jeans. Yep, same deal made in America from Ma- the materials. Materials, raw materials. Raw materials, right? Yeah. Yeah, like the cotton and yeah. whatnot. The, the what? The cotton. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, bro. You were talking to somebody, and you said it like that. No, you I didn't say cotton. I only say cotton to to, to no, imitate. No, you. you were real. Yeah, I don't know if you were imitating me. I was a hundred percent because otherwise no, there would be no tees. No, I, r- I rubbed off on you legit, but it wasn't cotton. It was button. You said button. Yeah, that same button thing. To somebody. I'm just doing that Whatever, to bother to, to imitate you. Whatever, bro. That's your jam now. So go ahead, and run with it. I think. Anyway, <laughs> jeans. Yes, good jeans too. Not just some rant like junk jeans. They're good. Turn them inside out like Pete says and look at the quality on the inside. These aren't normal jeans. These are the best jeans in the world. That's that's where I'm going to say. Agree. Factually. And also we have a lighter weight jeans that are out right now. Mm-hmm. At least they're close to being out. They're called <laughs> Delta 68. But I have them. They're out for me. They've been out for a while good. for me. One, but one pair they, out. Good. No, no. They're, they're in production for sure. That's 100%. So if you want... To get a pair that's a little lighter weight, it's weird too, right? Because here I am, Mr. Heavyweight Hoodie, sure. but I like lightweight jeans. I mm-hmm. guess that's the way things are going to shake yeah, out sometimes. You know how many times I've ever been cold? You know how many times I've ever been in my life said, ooh, my legs are cold? I don't know. Zero. Dang. Never. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense if you look at it practically, because if you're going to be in a situation where like the weather and the temperature is this thing, you're not going to be like, yeah, let me get my heavyweight clothes, but not my my pants. Like, it just doesn't make sense like that. See what I'm saying? So anytime where it's like a, 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 a temperature dictated scenario, you never really have the opportunity to have your legs cold. See what I'm saying? Okay. Like if you're going to Mauna Point, point taken. Point taken. Yeah. So. Going up top. So it's like, K. cool, that's cool and everything, but. So I really didn't say much. You didn't say much. Okay, exactly, cool. right. Well, we got lightweight jeans, Delta 68, named after my forefathers and the SEAL teams who wore jeans in the Mekong Delta Nam. Also supplements, mm-hmm. by the way. and Which I dig. I dig the, you know, the jeans, but until they come out, you know, I can't get too emotionally uh, moved okay. by it. Unless supplements I can because these supplements are, as it turns out, the most important supplements that, that there are. For your joints, joint warfare, and super krill oil. Cold war, mm-hmm. by the way, which is really put it in work recently. My son is sick, so, you know, I'm using this a lot. The cold war to prevent and head off any sicknesses that might be coming your way immunity supplement yes as it it were also milk additional protein in the form of a dessert Mm -hmm. so stick with that one ready to drink discipline go in a can tropic thunder citrus we got that's kind of mine my go-to is psycho citrus it's sort of like a lemon lime tropic thunder is kind of like a app uh, a pineapple coconut and then of course we have Dak Savage. Dak Savage is that your personal favorite uh by a little bit but yes 
So there's not a huge margin of favoritism. Close, 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 close. Did you see Dakota posted on his Instagram account, which I know you refer to that as the gram, (laughs) but (laughs) he posted like he just got, I don't know, like an entire pallet of Mm. Dak Savage to his house. Good move. Because Dakota's not playing around. No. But yeah, uh, yeah, first and then close second is uh, Tropic Thunder. And don't forget about Jocko White Tea if you need to improve your deadlift. I mean, yeah, it tastes good. Yeah, it's certified organic. Big deal. Yeah, it's got a little caffeine. Yeah, it's got antioxidants in it. All that's cool. It's good. But let's face it, you're getting that for that 8,000-pound deadlift. Yeah, and strawberry and chocolate warrior kid milk. Oh, what if you came home and you're like, oh, well, what do you want to give your kid to eat right now? How about poison? No, no, no poison. No one says that. No. And yet they give their kids sugar-filled Desserts, treats, snacks, funyuns, whatever those Remember are. Funyuns, I kind of do, but I don't think I liked them. For real, yeah, they were kind of. Uh, that was like a love hate scenario for sure. I yeah. Think. Well, anyways, don't give your kids any of that stuff when they want something tasty. Give them some Warrior Kid Mulk. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. JP Dinell, shout out by the way. Mm-hmm. He was well, you know, doing his workout. Apparently, he posted a picture of post-workout. Posted a picture of post-workout mm-hmm. picture wearing one of the many shirts. Oh, the new, it the, was, the new Def shirt. There was the new Def shirt, and there was also the lightweight hoodie scenario. So he's just getting after it. He's getting after it and representing. and representing. Oh, yeah, big time. Wait, is he on the path? He's on the path. So he's representing while he's on the path. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. That big is time. JP. But someone did ask, hey, where do you get that? So, I, you know, we say it every week. Sure. But I'm say it again. Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. So you can get the stuff to represent while you're on the path. T-shirts, anyway, t-shirts. rash guards, truckers, hats. Flex fit hats. Flex fit. If that's your thing. Beanies. Beanies. Hoodies. Uh, hoodies lightweight and heavy. Mm-hmm. Check. Depends on what you mean by heavy. Anyway, a lot of cool stuff on, on there. Check it out if you like something. Get something. There's women's stuff on there too. And for the warrior kids. Oh, yeah. Everything. Yeah. That's Christmas time. How stoked are you when your little kid opens up a warrior kid package and it's a t-shirt for your kids walking around school representing? Oh, now your kid's time. on the path representing while he's on the path. Oh, yeah. Or big she's time. on the path. Oh, yeah. Big time. So, yeah, all that stuff. JockoStore.com. Also, you want to subscribe to the podcast. Or so should I say, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, go ahead and do so. I'm not, like, not going to sit here. You don't think that someone's on podcast 208? And they've, there's the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of us talking, and you think they didn't get to the end and like hit subscribe? Yeah, um, I don't know, but it's possible, or it's possible <laughs> that maybe someone just had stumbled upon podcasts in general. Oh yeah, see what I'm saying? Yep. Is that possible? I sat next to a woman on the plane. Sure. And and she was older than me. And she asked me something and somehow she asked what I was doing because I was like preparing something Sure, and I said oh, I'm writing this for a for a podcast and she goes. Oh, and I said Do you know what podcasts are? Mm -hmm. She she didn't like that. I said that (laughs) Did she say of course she goes or was she she goes of course? I know what a podcast is. She said I'm not that old (laughs) 
And I said, I know you're not. I said, but a lot of people don't know. And by, by the way, I said, I'm probably older than you. And she said, there's zero chance that you're older than me. Uh-huh. But were you? Know, no, I was not. Or you're scared to ask her. Uh, actually, she told me her age. And she's older than you? She was older than me. All right. Well, there you go. But here's the thing. You really didn't gain much information because it's not like you had, You said, do you know what podcasts are? You got to ask her, do you know whether or not to subscribe? Do you know that it's possible to subscribe so to podcasts? You know what I did? I took her phone and I sh- showed her Jocko Podcast. Oh, you brought it up. Okay. And I pressed subscribe for her because she was already See? in kind of in the game. Yeah. Yeah, you know, she was interested in what was happening. Yeah, man, and now she's in the game fully. Yep. And either way, whether she knew to subscribe or not, she subscribed. But the question still remains: Does everyone know about podcasts and the subscription option? If you don't know to subscribe, then subscribe. And also, you may not have been aware because this was probably the worst launch in the history of launches. <laughs> randomly, maybe ever. Echo's big effort to make an impact in the world. We have another podcast which is called Grounded, and we talk about <laughs> casual things of life, including jujitsu and not so casual things. But it's a little bit not a quite as heavy or structured or yeah as this podcast. It's called the Grounded Podcast. You can subscribe to that one too. You can also subscribe to Warrior Kid Podcast. There's gonna be some new ones coming out. Yep. The worst was when that kid sent me a letter that said. I'm wondering why you don't make more podcasts. Dang. That one hit me right in the you. heart. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget about Warrior Kid Soap. Go to irishoaksranch.com. Aiden is up there making soap. And we got a new soap coming out, by the way. Dang, what's it It's going to be out what's pretty soon. You want to know what it's called? Yes, sir, I do. It's called Killer Soap. <laughs> it's right. called Killer Soap. Is it antibacterial it's or something? It's antibacterial. Right, antimicrobial. Oh, yeah. It's All got right. tea tree oil. See, that's good. Got activated charcoal. <laughs> so it's going to be coming out soon. Check out the killer soap. That's a good one, actually. Does this make me a marketing genius is the question. Uh, kind of. Well, You're kind of looking like it was a marketing genius uh, move. Th- it's a good product, we'll say that. You conveyed that message very clearly. and So, yeah, I guess so. Genius? Hmm. Well, you know, maybe. maybe I don't not. know. What would you have called it? I, Something lame amen. is what I'm feeling. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we have a YouTube channel. How about that? That's good. Marketing genius. Positive. Guess what? YouTube channel. Video is the thing nowadays, right? Marketing guy. Right? Video. It's it's a good addition. For instance, if someone's listening to this podcast and they want to see what Jason looks like, they can go on there and, and they can see what Jason looks like. They can also see what I look like. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they can see what you look like. Sure. Which most people don't think you look like what you sound like. That's what I've heard. That's the consensus. Yeah. Don't, don't be worried about it, bro. I'm not worried. All good. Wait, would should you, I be worried? What, what, would you prefer to have the current scenario, which is you sound... <laughs> Small, weak, and frail, and but you're actually kind of jacked. Sure. Or would okay. you rather sound like this is Echo Charles, but then you were skinny and weak? Yeah. Besides well, your knees. Well, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I think the answer is obvious. Or would I rather look how it? Well, no, because this is a knock on how I sound, really. So technically, the dichotomy mm-hmm. or the other side of the dichotomy would be like, would I rather <laughs> sound? Yeah, yeah. Would I rather sound big and look small or look big and sound small? Mm-hmm. 
because that's kind of what the would you rather? You're good with where you're I'm at. I'm good at where we're at. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. take that. Uh, anyway, and, so yeah, YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, and and Echo makes like videos, not just of this podcast, but also enhanced videos and Mikey and the Dragons, which is a children's book that I wrote that John Bozak did the artwork for. We we just posted the entire thing, cover to cover, on YouTube, so that kids around the world can watch and learn how to overcome fear. Yeah. My kids love that video, by the way. Yeah. They've been watching it even since before we posted yeah, it. Yeah, it's legit. very good. Uh, Psychological Warfare. Got a little album out, and it has tracks. And if you have a little moment where you're like, man, I wish Jocko would just kind of like give me a little give me a little talk right now, get me in the game, yeah. that's what it is. You think you're going to not... You think you're not gonna work out? You think you're gonna lay in bed? You think you're gonna grab hold of that donut? No, I'm gonna stop you. Yeah. Just press play on your on your device. listening device yeah, and listen to that MP3. You can get that on the uh, MP3 dealer, iTunes, yeah. Google Play, Stitcher, whatever. Leave reviews. Uh, actually, it's not Stitcher. It's iTunes, Google Play, whatever. MP3 platforms. Don't forget about Flipside Canvas. Maybe you need a visual kind of a visual reinforcement of the path. Cool, go to flipsidecanvas.com, which is run by my brother, Dakota Meyer, and you can get yourself some some graphic representation of what we call the path. Yes, sir. It will remind you and it will keep you on it. Got some books, got Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. Pre-order it now so that the publisher knows how many to print. Because otherwise, they're over there uh, rounding down, yep. right? They're like, well, we probably will get away with this. No. Mm. Yeah. They don't understand. Let them understand. Pre-order it. Get one for you. Get one for your your significant other. Get one for, get one for each of the people on your team. Get one for your boss. Just, just get some. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. All the little questions that we have about leadership are in here indexed heavily so you can look through the index making an ultimatum as the boss hmm making an ultimatum as a subordinate okay Th- those are interesting right dealing with an ultimatum placed on you that's these are these are important things to know and understand balancing praise that sounds like a good idea tactfully delivering the truth i'm just looking to c- giving clear guidance Keeping the troops informed. So these are all punishment. How to how to meet out punishment? You like that? You made that little video of this. Yes. Wait. Of, for the book. Me, yeah. Of me saying, when do I punish people? <laughs> 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 so that's good. Leadership strategy and tactics. Uh, check it out. Way of the Warrior Kids series one, two, and three. All available. All. The best books that you would have wanted when you were a kid. If I would have had these books when I was a kid, my life would have been better. And that's a bold statement. Mm-hmm. So, Way of the Warrior Kid, Way of the Warrior Kid 2, Mark's Mission, and Way of the Warrior Kid 3, Where There's a Will. Get your kid on the path. Look, I know you want them on the path, but it's hard when you're a parent because your kids don't really want to listen to you. They don't. They'll listen to Uncle Jake, though. For some reason, they'll listen to Uncle Jake. So, Get them those books, and then Mikey and the Dragons. Look, cool, watch the video, cool. We put it on YouTube for free, obviously. But what you can do is you get your kids the book, and then they can read along, and they learn to read. They learn to read while they learn to overcome 
fear. You're welcome. Merry Christmas. Um, then there's Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. There's the holiday gift. Give the gift of discipline. Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. The audio versions are on MP3 platforms. Then Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. Leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. These books will show you the principles that we used on the battlefield that you can use in your business and life. Echelon Front, Leadership Consultancy, we solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. EF Online, you know, I used to be able to say to people, well, you know, got some good leadership lessons. Go, uh, oh, you got some questions about extreme ownership? Oh, you got some, oh, cool. Uh, here, go to, um, you know, go listen to my podcast. And it's like, okay, cool. What does that look like now? I say go listen to the podcast, and what does that turn into? That turns into 700 hours of training for your people. Not always the most efficient way. It's a good, uh, whatever, doctorate level, but let's get this thing concise. That's what EF Online is. EF Online is, boom, here you go. Here's some pragmatic training information for you and your team. You can get on there. You're going to be put in leadership situations where you have to make decisions. It's interactive. It's entertaining. You get to see the Echelon Front team putting out the word. So check out EFonline.com. And then Muster 2020 dates are coming. We're actually finalizing those right now. If you want to come to a leadership event slash seminar slash conference with me and the rest of the echelon front team go to extremeownership.com so you're aware when the details come out and then of course now we have ef overwatch and ef legion we we are placing military members that have leadership skills and experience and that understand the principles that we teach and we are placing those military personnel into civilian businesses to lead those businesses so that they can dominate their battle space. So go to efoverwatch.com or eflegion.com. And if you want to follow follow up with us, if you've got questions or answers or comments or whatever, if you want to connect, if you want to be part of the community. No, we're not saying that. If you want to connect with us, well, Jason and GoRuck, all channels at GoRuck. And then we are also on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on this friggin' Beasel. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And once again, thanks to Jason McCarthy for coming on the podcast and sharing his experience. And of course, thanks to Jason for his service in the army and for what he is doing now and thanks to all the men and women out there that have served and that are currently serving going through the long nights the early mornings the cold the heat the risk of life and limb all to protect freedom and democracy thanks to all of you and to those brave individuals doing that same thing here in america to keep us safe at home, our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics and EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service and all first responders, thank you for what you do. And on top of those two, I wanna also give credit to our intelligence community out there in America and overseas 
doing work to keep us safe, taking the fight to the enemy by knowing and understanding who they are and what they do. And to everyone else out there, things aren't always going to go the way that you think they will. There will be challenges and there will be obstacles and there will be unexpected problems and you will sometimes have to carry more weight than you want to. You might have to carry more weight than you think you can. And when that happens, remember to take that weight, take it on your shoulders, stand up, put one foot in front of the other, and keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.